0: This is VOCM Open Line. Call 709-273-5211 or 1-888-590-8626. The views and opinions of this program are not necessarily those of this station. The biggest conversation in Newfoundland and Labrador starts now. Here's VOCM
1: Open Line host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. It's Thursday, February the 1st. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's producing the program. You'll be speaking with David when you pick up the phone. It gives a shout to get in the queue and on the air. If you're in the St. John's Metro region, the number to dial, 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, it's toll-free, long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 86 26, so for hockey fans, nothing on the tube insofar as NHL hockey goes. They're on their all-star break. I don't know if you tune into the all-star games in any of the major sports. I can't really get into it. You know, there's really nothing on the line, so to speak, and it's... It's a little bit of a waste of time, but anyway, it's something enjoyed by the players, I suppose, who are uh, given the nod as an All-Star. Also, aspiring play-by-play teenager, Seth Hyde from St. John's. He's just really incredible for his age, the way he can handle the play-by-play for an amateur game of hockey. He also called the Growlers game not so long ago as well. So he's actually going to Toronto for the All-Star Game festivities. He's been a part of the Youth Advisory Group, advising the NHL about marketing to younger uh, fans around the world. So Seth Hyde on his way to enjoy the all-star game congratulations to you he's a He's a lovely young fellow, as a matter of fact. All right, before we get to another couple of notes, sticking with the ice. A 20-year veteran of officiating in the game of minor and amateur hockey is Danielle Mills. This past weekend, she made history as the first female to officiate a senior hockey game in the province. She was uh, on the ice on Sunday in Grand Falls, Windsor, to ref one of the games in the Central West Senior Hockey League. And, of course, she's the head of the female officiating arm of Hockey Newfoundland and Labrador. You know, she said, that, well, the pace kind of caught her off guard a little bit. Of course, it's probably the fastest brand of amateur hockey in the province but once you get out there and you get into a groove it's all good so congratulations to danielle mills first female to officiate a senior hockey game and for rugby fans one more sleep until one of the premier sporting events on the calendar annually is six nations rugby it kicks off tomorrow 4:30 island time france hosts ireland which should be an absolute doozy if you're interested in watching any six nations rugby with rugby fans uh like yourself, you can go over to the Swalers Club on Crosby Road. Doors open at fourth game the kickoffs at four thirty lasagna supper and a pint for twenty bucks. So there you go. A couple more randoms as we ease into the show this morning. This was a, such a strange story when it happened, and every now and then I see this pop by in my social media feed. It was on this date in 1994, Jeff Gallooly. Remember who Jeff Gallooly is, Dave? He pleads guilty for his part in attack on American Olympic figure skater Nancy Kerrigan. The plea bargain, he confessed to racketeering in exchange for testimony implicating his ex-wife, Tanya Harding. That was such a strange story. And on this date 1997, future Hall of Fame uh, defenseman uh, Ray Bork scored a goal, had an assist to become the Boston Bruins' all-time leading scorer with 1,341 points in his 18-year career. He remains the all-time leading scorer for the Boston Bruins to this day. Might get caught by Marchand though. He's yeah, creeping up on him. This and Dave Williams, big football fan, it was on this date in 2004. The infamous wardrobe malfunction, which, of course, rocked the broadcast world. So Janet Jackson's breast was exposed during the halftime show, the Super Bowl, uh, resulting in U.S. broadcasters adopting a stronger adherence to FCC censorship guidelines. Of course, carefully staged between herself and Justin Timberlake, but that was a weird one. All right, so today marks the day where the RNC will expand their geographical jurisdiction. I had it right here, somewhere right in front of me. Okay, it's a big one. So as of today, and of course this is going to continue to grow face by face throughout this calendar year, effective today, the RNC will be taking over the policing of Massey Drive and Mount Moriah. There have been officers added to the force. If you would speak to an RNC constable, they'll tell you that the ranks are stretched pretty thin. Justice Minister John Hogan is... Pretty confident that with the additional budgeting and the additional manpower that they will indeed be able to effectively police, but it is a big deal and it does bring around questions about. Now, there's no changes to 911 in the area, and of course, as mentioned, there will be further expansion responsibility for the RNC. But you wonder what the future of the RCMP looks like in this province. I'm not going to suggest that the RCMP is going by the wayside, but they've had huge vacancies, and now consequently, the requirement for the RNC to pick up some of their slack. I don't know. If if it's a coincidence or not, but it was on this date, February the 1st of 1920, that the Royal Canadian Mounted Police began. So the Royal Northwest Mounted Police became the RCMP, with the absorption of the Dominion Police. So coincidentally, right, the RNC replacing some RCMP jurisdiction, the RCMP began policing in Canada on this date, 1920. Interesting coincidence. All right, and I see there's also going to be a vigil held for the two young ladies who were killed in a tragic highway collision just east of Ireland's Cove last week. So the uh, the vigil's going to be at the Dildo Lions Club, and if anyone who would like to share in the, I don't know what's the right way to say it, you know, community grief or however people will characterize this, but it's just a shockingly sad story. And there's still some confusion on top of the grief and the anger. So the suspect, uh, well, the 71-year-old man who struck that car, and eventually both ladies are dead, there's, he's suspected of being impaired. So there's been blood samples taken, but it's going to be maybe a couple of months before we even find out what happened here, because the sample has been sent to a lab up along, and apparently the turnaround time is like two months, so tomorrow, Friday, in Dildo at the Lions Club, uh, the vigil will be held. You're encouraged to bring a flower for the families involved in our deepest condolences. That's just absolutely terrible story. And maybe potentially possibly getting worse when we hear the results of that laboratory work. Okay, let's keep rolling. You heard this in the news, and this has been a conversation happens repeatedly, especially in my email. It's about the new national dental care program. So as of today, seniors age seventy two and older are eligible to register. Okay, there's been some 400,000 seniors who have already registered for the National Dental Care Plan, and of course it's means tested based on income. If you have a net family income of $90,000 or less, you're eligible. And there's a pretty expansive range of coverage available in this program. If your net family income in the household is $70,000 or less, there will be no copay. But here's the problem. So inside $13 billion dollars. To you know, anticipated to help or serve some nine million Canadians who are uninsured by 2025, the problem is clear, and this is kind of part and parcel with how governments operate. Sometimes it's fine to have all of these programs available. And certainly, your dental care is a big part of your overall health. But at this moment in time, there is no ability for dentists, hygienists, or denturists to register for the program. They have no idea how the billing process is gonna work. They have no idea how much they're gonna be paid for their services. So it's fine to say, you now can register uh, ma'am or sir as the 72 years of age or older, But there's no dentists or hygienists or denturists that are actually involved in the plan as of yet. Now we're told by Federal Health Minister Mark Collin that imminently they'll be given that information, but it's supposed to start in March. (laughs) <laughs> so that's pretty soon it's February so it's fine to have the program and the portals available The by May will be open for those 65 years of age and older but as of now none of the dental care professionals are actually formally involved nor do they know how it's going to work and we've already heard complaints about the additional administrative work that will be assigned to this program so it's fine for the feds to open up the portals quite another to have an actual dental clinic to be able to go to for said coverage anyway let's keep rolling So, no surprise here, there's a new report coming from the Federal Housing Agency regarding rental rates and vacancy. Rental rates have soared, vacancies have gotten even tighter, both are all-time records. So here we go, the vacancy rate for purpose-built rentals, apartments, sat at 1.5% during the first two weeks of October, that's when they do their annual survey. The country has fallen so woefully behind on housing. And, of course, when you look at the reaction from, like, the Canadian Mortgage and Housing Corporation, they're not surprised with the data at all. Nor are economic analysts working for all the big banks and mortgage lenders. So the path to the catch-up, you know, again, government has put forward pots of money for these types of issues and to build more purpose-built housing, But we've got the permitting problem. We've got the availability of skilled tradespeople to actually accommodate all the proposals and all the money that's put forward. And also when it comes to the average rent, rent grew for a two-bedroom purpose-built apartment, grew 8% to $1,359 in 2023. That growth figures up from 5.6% rent increase recorded in 2022 and above the 1990 to 22 average of 2.8%. So if you're a low-income earner, I don't know how people make ends meet. I just have no earthly idea. Between keeping a roof over your head and a vehicle in the driveway and all the necessities of life and insurance and food and the rest of it, add in these rental issues and away we go. On that front, I think in some form international students have been used as a bit of a scapegoat for the housing problem. You know, the government, the federal government, has acknowledged that some of their lofty immigration goals are unmanageable. It does not make you a bad person or anti-immigration to just do some basic math here. With the number of people coming to the country, the inability to house them properly, appropriately, the inability to access healthcare as people should, regardless if you're a newcomer or a born and bred Canadian, however you put that particular phrase, But the international student issue, okay. So if there's a problem with so-called sham institutions and institutions taking advantage of really high-priced tuition for international students, let's just figure out who those institutions are and give them zero student visas. If they're not doing good work, if they're not producing quality education opportunities for international students or anybody else, let's just let them die on the vine. You know, don't fuel their fire. So they kind of, again, kind of get this one a little bit backwards. And the cap is significant, a 35% reduction in 2023. So it's going to be over the course of two years. That's a reduction of some 360,000 study permits. We don't really know how it's going to impact Memorial University. There's about 5,100 people who are international students at MUN. That's uh, and about 10% of the College of the North Atlantic, which is 671 people, come to study from abroad. And of course, these are two quality accredited institutions. So hopefully, it won't be a big impact on their bottom line. Because if you are a student attending Memorial University, and if there's a reduction in the number of international students, with the significant tuition they pay, what's the end result? very likely another tuition hike for domestic students. So there's a double-edged sword, no doubt about that. In addition to that, on the national front, there's been about 800,000-ish international students per year, of course it fluctuates. There's also a contribution to the economy. So we can talk about the impact on housing, the impact on health care, and they're real, and we have to discuss it and understand it, but they do make a significant economic contribution. When the, you know Whether or not you think GDP is the right measure to look at, we can do it. In 2018, the number was $21, uh, $21.6 billion contribution to Canadian GDP directly from international students. And then there's the issues regarding work visas for their spouses. You know, to study abroad, and they've made that decision, But, you know, we kind of put them in an awkward position so far as quality of life goes. The inability to work as much as they need to, of course, pay their bills and then try to strike that work-study balance. And then with life becoming a little bit more difficult when you're living in a foreign place and you can't reunite with your spouse, can't get a work visa. So there's lots of complicating issues there. And some of that's provincial responsibility. But on that housing front and international students, when the private market is basically, outside of dormitories, of which there's not enough across the the country for international students, it really is incumbent on the federal government, provincial governments, and these universities and colleges to figure that out. I mean, can we not, as opposed to simply put out generic pots of money for purpose-built housing units, if there's a concern on the student front, let's build more student housing and put money aside for exactly that. You know, it should be the responsibility, in my personal opinion, of these colleges and universities to be able to accommodate the number of international students they're willing to welcome. And, of course, the significant tuition that they pay. So we're kind of all playing a little bit of footsie here with the federal government on this front. If you have acknowledged a problem with sham institutions, deal with them. If you know there's an issue regarding housing and international students, build purpose-built housing for international students. That doesn't seem like it's a big stretch and or anything too creative or outside the box you want to take it on. We can do it. Stick with housing for a second. So, plenty of people in the country have taken advantage of up to $5,000 grant in the Canada Greener Homes Grant Programme. So there was some $2.6 billion set aside for exactly that. And it's drying up. It looked like when they first announced it that it was gonna run up until 2027, but apparently the money's gone away. There's been about 700,000 grants. It comes with another implication. And maybe this has been a quasi-artificially generated industry, it's all of the energy assessors. Because to access that Canada Greener Home grant, you had to have someone come in to do an energy audit in your house. So there's been hundreds of millions of dollars invested in training programs. There are copious number of people who have taken advantage of those jobs because they're seriously busy, 700,000 grants. So while the money's drying up, and we don't know whether or not the government will refuel it and extend the life of that program, which has been very helpful. You know, if you want to upgrade your efficiency, energy efficiency in the home, this was one of the best programs because it targeted the notables, right? New windows, insulation, the things that make a market difference as soon as you attend to them in your own home. So the industry that has been created because of these government jobs, government monies, they look like they're going to go down to a mere trickle. You know, doing hundreds or thousands a month to go down to one or two obviously means the numbers of people you've trained and the investment you've made in your business are albeit some of that support came from the federal government, it looks like that industry may take a brutal hammering if that grant program goes away. Now again, it may indeed have been an artificially tweaked opportunity because of a government funding, but that's one of those implications that are on the side. Stick with housing for a second, and that's the ability to heat your home. And we might get a call from Dennis Brown, the Consumer Advocate. In a news release from the Public Utilities Board, we know about the two rate applications that have come from Newfoundland Power. 1.5% increase this year to come into effect in July, another 5.5% increase scheduled for next July. Hearings begin today about the schedule and the procedures for these applications, but coming directly from the PUB itself. Quote, Full recovery of Newfoundland Power's costs, including forecast supply costs, could result in significantly higher increase in customer rates than the 5.5% indicated in the application. So the P.U.B. kind of getting out in front of it, say so there might even be more what newfoundland power is asking for so inside of those rate applications there's also the implication of the greater return on equity from 8.5 percent to 9.85 percent of course newfoundland power says they have to replace aging infrastructure and uh, assets to better handle storms but the pub before the process has even begun is saying it's probably going to be even more than 5.5 percent not good news for all of us rate payers and maybe dennis brown if he's interested can up on the program this morning also increase in price right across the board in fuels everything's up gasoline up 3.4 cents per liter diesel up 5.2 cents per liter furnace oil up 4.18 uh, 1.8 cents per liter stove oil increased 4.5 cents per liter propane usually is not affected too greatly although last week there was a big bump and pro- propane increased 1.6 cents per liter here's an additional story to it when you go to fill up your vehicle with gasoline, there's another, not only the five cents that people bemoan about the importation of fuels because of the change in the focus at come by chance, and the five cents per liter that goes to Silver Peak, there's also five cents a liter that goes directly back to the refineries. Why? Because of the clean fuel regulations. So they've spent a lot of money to try to change the way they refine the product and to lower emissions as a result and they say this is an opportunity to recover the cost imposed on them by the federal government. But here's the trick. Apparently there's a report out there now that I haven't read through in its entirety, but it looks like cost recovery does not add up to five cents per liter. It's more like one cent a liter. So at every turn, there's someone with their hand deep in my pocket. So if cost recovery numbers are a cent a liter, let's not pay five cents a liter. The industry itself, and this is pathetic, their pushback is, hey, wait now, we have been told we have to invest all this money. Yeah, well, you're in a big business and you're making a ton of money, so spare me. Then they say, well, if there's you know, a reduction in cost recovery numbers, then we might see a, fu- a fuel insecurity problem. And the, I guess the taunt there is, maybe we'll just see some of these uh, suppliers, these gas stations, these gas companies, pull up and move away. No, they're not, they're not gonna do that. I mean, does that industry think we're all idiots? Because we're not. They're not gonna walk away from supplying fuel. If the cost is at a cent, and you're making five off us, then, you know, these crocodile tears and these vacuous, empty threats or taunts that you're going to maybe have a full fuel insecurity issue, Not so much. Anyway, how are we doing on the phone, Dave? There's a bunch of stuff I wanted to get to, but anyway, quickly, there's highly anticipated testimony coming at the Foreign Interference in Elections uh, inquiry today. So the head of CESAS, David Vino is set to appear in front of the inquiry this morning. 80% of the documents that have been supplied to the inquiry at this point are labeled top secret or higher. There was testimony yesterday by a former CSIS chief named Richard Fadden. He says the country should be more transparent about national security intelligence. Here's the quote. Things are classified more than they need to be, he said. The culture, the workload, and the tradition in agencies, I think, is to tend towards overprotection. I don't know where that balance is, but that's going to be fascinating to hear. Maybe a reaction from the current head of CSIS, David Vigneault today, to his... Former head uh, being Richard Fadden, but that's happening, and surprisingly, we haven't had much in the way of calls on that particular inquiry, which is so critically important. But anyway, I want to take it on? Let's go. Fairly sad one. Well, pardon me. Sad one to wrap up the preamble this morning. Rick Boland. I knew Rick, he was a funny guy, and he was a real tour de force in the arts community here. Rick is dead at the age of 70. So he was big part of the uh, Newfoundland Traveling Theater Company and the Mummers Troop Collective. He was a co-founder of the Rising Tide Theater in Trinity, really well known for some, uh, uh, some important bodies of work that he was involved with, The Adventure of Faustus Bidgood, which, amazing stuff, Hatching, Matching, and Dispatching, of course, along with Mary Walsh. Uh, he made appearances at the Republic of Doyle and otherwise. Where I really thought Rick Sparkle, though, was his work with the Rising Tide Review. So to skewer politicians and other notable members of society, Rick was a real master at it. And of course, he was a strategist, worked a long time with the NDP here across the province. So Rick Boland, dead at the age of 70, we're hearing, Lots of commentary coming from his friends and colleagues in the arts and the theater world. And if they'd like to reminisce about Rick and tell us uh, some personal stories, and look back at the life and achievements of Rick Baldwin on the program, we're happy to do that as well. We're on Twitter. We're at VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Email address is openline at When we come back, let's have a great show. That means you're in the queue to talk about whatever's on your mind. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let us go. Line number one. Good morning, Ernest. You're on the air. Hello, Patty. How's it going? Doing okay. How about you?
2: Not bad, not bad. Uh, Probably better than the town of Stephenville is doing lately, it seems. Um, The reason I'm calling, actually, is because over the last uh, month or so, uh, the council has seen its number reduced by three. So three of the councillors have uh, resigned within this month. Um, The town has lost several chief uh, administrative officers. I believe they're looking for their fourth one now. Um, And I think that this is uh, a sign that there is a a lack of confidence in the leadership of the town of Stephenville. And I think that it might be time to start talking about having an all-around just general municipal election for the town. Because, you know, losing that many councillors within a short amount of time is uh, quite unusual and does raise a few questions. Such as? I mean... What makes these three councillors want to resign? And and the other thing is, too, is that the town is in a lot of debt. You know, Stephenville's uh, financial situation has decreased considerably over the last few years. I mean, when I was uh, still living in Stephenville, there was a surplus. But under the current administration, there is now a, a deficit and there is a debt restructuring plan in place. Um, there's a lot of different issues going on, various controversies, as, as anyone who's paid attention to what goes on in steamville will know. You now, we've had the, the situation with the airport over the last couple of years, and uh, now there's the world energy uh, situation. But the thing is, is that all of this, especially these resignations, not only just councillors, but staff as well, it really makes me question um, the, the confidence uh, of this current existing council, the ones that remain. And that's why I think that we need to have a full general election just to make sure that, you know, the people of the town of Steamville feel comfortable with this leadership and the way it's going. Because I I have a feeling that if it was brought to an election, I don't think any of the councillors would would get back in.
1: Maybe not. Have any of the councillors who have left and or town, I think you said managers or clerks, has anyone spoken out as to the reasons why they've left their position?
2: Uh, there has been some some uh, comments made in that yes, but 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 Patty, that's not the point. I mean, the point is is that if we could say that they're not accustomed to the stresses of the position,
1: things like that, well, they were elected almost three years ago
2: now. So I mean, just, you know, if
3: you're just
1: pardon me, you're not, it's not part of the conversation as to why someone has left their position as a councillor. I thought that was the entire conversation.
2: Well, it can be part of that, yes, but the thing is, Patty, they're not always going to say exactly what happened within public, you know, because it's a small town. You know, you don't want to cause conflict with people you're going to run into, you know, rather constantly. But like I said, Patty, this is a question – this is a, an issue of confidence now. You know, the three councillors within a month, that's a little bit much. And like I said, we have seen significant changes with the financial state of the town of Stephenville. And and I think that's why we need to have a general election because there's, okay. there's not – I'm sorry?
1: I said, okay. I mean, as a resident, you'd have much more perspective on it than I would living on the opposite side of the island. So uh, I would like to know what the councillors are actually thinking. And if any of them would like to reach out to me, even confidentially and privately, so we can wrap some more uh, context around this, I'd be more than happy to take their email. Who are the councillors who I have left? Uh, I believe it is uh, Councillor Hewlin, Bolin, and Tiller. Tiller's an interesting one because, uh, you know, all the way through on issues specifically regarding the Stephenville Airport and support by this, the, the town for the airport, he voted repeatedly against additional funding f- uh, flowing to the airport authority. So he's one of those standout voices on that particular front. So I will reach out to Councillor Tiller or former Councillor Tiller and see if he'd like to uh, join us on the program to talk about how the council is functioning or how it's not functioning. Happy to do it.
2: Oh yeah, that'd be that'd be a, a great conversation, I think. And I think any of the councillors who want to kind of come in and and set the record straight, you know, existing or or previously left, I mean, they're more than welcome to do so. I'd like to hear their perspective on it. But I mean, like I said, the situation in the town of Stevenville has changed drastically since the election of the current administration, and you know that does make me really question if they are the ones that are able to carry us forward as we see these new opportunities arise and I mean you know like like property um, like the assessments have gone up so people are paying a little bit more in, in terms of their taxes and that uh, we've had numerous infrastructure issues um, for the for a while we were actually getting water from the town of Kippins because the water system had not been maintained so much that there were so many leaks going on throughout the community um, and only only at the last minute when it was too much to ignore then we started you know fixing the problems and and I, I think that um, that's it's not it 's not good patty and and things like this need to be addressed and i i don 't know if the current administration has the ability i mean they 're kind of focused on one particular issue within the town, and they seem to devote more of their energy towards that despite the other opportunities that are coming in into the town um, we 've also seen a little bit more spending by um, the existing mayor than i as a as a as a well, now I live in St. John's going to school, mind you, but as, as, a, as a resident, former resident of Stephenville, I'm, I'm not so comfortable with that. You know, uh, we've been trying to do, like, town twinning projects uh, with uh, some city in France. Uh, we've been, you know, the mayor's gone, went over to Germany for this, uh, some kind of conference with um, involving hydrogen energy And I mean, they were promising all these benefits and returns for this, but the thing is, I haven't seen anyone from Toulouse or uh, Avignon or anywhere else in France come by for a visit, as well as anyone from, uh, from Berlin
1: or Munich. So, I mean, but there I, has been, I, though. I, kind of, <laughs> so, I mean, some of the biggest businesses and business leaders from those two countries were part of that huge contingent that made their way to Stephenville, whatever, whatever that was last year. I mean, there were some huge businesses represented, and it was all about uh, hydrogen and subcritical mineral interest and that, have, and so what, and so have it. Uh, so the, some of those people have absolutely been here
2: no no no. i'm not saying that but i'm just saying in terms of say tourism town branding things like that it hasn't really been that effective patty and and the other thing is the mayor is you know as much as with all due respect to the mayor of course he's just a municipal mayor you know from from stephenville you know i don't really see what impact he has going all the way over to to europe and representing us as, as part of this i i think it's a bit of a uh, a bit of an expense that we don't need, especially considering the town's finances. That's, that's the thing. I mean, and that's what we have provincial and federal governments for. You know, they, they represent us on the, on the larger stage.
1: Yeah, The town did sign an MOU with Germany, and I guess that's some with one foot, two feet under the covers with Royal Energy GH2. And, of course, the big issue on top of that trip to Germany was the fact that he and I'm not sure who else flew home on John Risley's jet, which got a lot of traction. Uh, Anything else quickly, Ernest, before I take one more call this morning, sir?
4: Uh, No, no,
2: I just wanted to get that uh, point out and that. And uh, the point about uh, him flying home with... uh With uh, the CEO of uh, World Energy, I think that's also something that's a bit questionable, and maybe we need to start kind of reviewing uh, the way municipal officials can act in this in this province because uh, I think that that's something that was a little too uncomfortable for me to uh, to take. But thank you very much, Patty, uh, for taking my call.
1: I appreciate your time. Take care. Thank you. Bye, Ernest. All right, uh, another one before we get to a break. Uh, Let's go to line number two. Good morning, Kim Churchill. You're on the air.
5: Hi, Patty. How are you doing this morning?
1: I'm doing okay. How about you?
5: Good. I just want to call, of course, and um, thank everybody who helped out with my campaign and, uh, and supported me. Um, I had a tremendous uh, amount of people that uh, were right alongside me helping out um, throughout this past month and beyond. And uh, I had a, a great group of volunteers that I got to give a huge shout out to because, of course, you know, January is not the most uh, prettiest and hottest time to be going door to door and uh, putting signs out, of course. But, uh, you know, they braved some pretty uh, harsh elements and still um, trotted along And uh, and certainly was there every day showing up and helping out. Um, and uh, I have to thank all the voters who who uh, put their trust in me and, and um, shared so many personal, incredible stories that um, I definitely cherish and uh, I will not forget. Um, a lot of these people I intend to actually still follow up with and, uh, and and connect with because it did it did change me a lot this past month. Um, the way that uh, I look at my community and my district is uh, is different right now and when you hear a lot of the struggles that you hear at the Doric you can't help but be impacted by that so um, I definitely thank them all as well and of course the NDP for putting their trust in me and uh, and faith in that um uh, I would be their candidate, and uh, and you know everything that uh, I've learned in this past month. I can't help them enough for um, their their patience and their guidance and their strength and their um, you know they're quite an inspiring group of people to work with day to day. And I feel so so honored that I had this opportunity.
1: Can you say you learned things along the way? Such as, are, are we talking about campaigning and politics, or learning what in particular?
5: Yeah, I mean, specifically, this obviously was my first time. Um, campaigning, so it was a huge learning curve for me, personally. Uh, it's not something I've ever um, looked into or, or you know, uh, had experience in. So what surprised a you lot
1: then? What surprised me? you? What surprised you about being a candidate?
5: Oh my gosh, there is a lot of work. <laughs> There's a lot of work that goes behind the scenes that people have no idea about. Um, you know, the, the, uh, the staff that was working with me literally were working from 9 until 10 every single day, um, and in fact, I saw very few breaks, and uh, and you know, as a candidate, even I didn't get to learn a whole lot about what you know was involved with what they were doing because, um, you know, as a candidate, we're trying to focus on what our goal is, and uh, and that is of course getting out to as many people as we can talk to, and uh, and prepare for um, a lot of the discussions that we had as candidates, uh, whether panel discussions and debates, um, and so we don't see a whole lot of uh, what's going on behind the scenes, but. The amount of work that went into um, making the phone calls and uh, following up with people and, um, you know, preparing for the the areas of the communities in the district and breaking them down, and it was just incredible to see. Uh, Yeah, there is an awful lot that goes on behind the scenes that um, we're just not aware of and takes a a, a tremendous amount of work and uh, diligence for sure.
1: When the general election comes, whenever that might be, this year, next year, are you going to give it another shot?
5: Yeah, I'm thinking about it. <laughs> i got to be honest. Um, I uh, I certainly, you know, as hard as it was this past month, for me personally, it was very rewarding. Um, I found the experience to be um, fun as well. I mean, it, it certainly, like I said, uh, opened my eyes up um, to a great deal of what's happening. And um, and it really, you know, inspired me or, or motivated me more. I I already had this drive, internal drive to want to do something. Um, to help and uh, reach out and do more. But that's even stronger now than it was before because of all the stories and what was being told to me. So it certainly is something that I am definitely looking into.
1: I appreciate your time. Congratulations on taking a run. It's not an easy decision to arrive at. And as you say, campaigning is harder than people think. It's a time-consuming and mentally exhausting exercise. I appreciate making time for the show this morning. Kim, you're always welcome.
5: Thank you. And you know what? I really appreciate your time as well, Patty, and uh, David and everyone at VOCM, who has been just phenomenal over this past month in particular. You've always been a great supporter of us uh, as a family, but uh, for the campaign in particular, it was wonderful to have the support. Every week we were welcome to come on to the show and, uh, and discuss topics with you. So thank you very much for that as well.
1: Pleasure. Stay in touch. Okay, you too. Take care, bye, goodbye. bye And just for clarification, I shouldn't be speaking for Kim, but she said "Always, we've always supported her, her and her family. That's not a reference to the campaign. That's in reference to her son Carter and all the fights they've had with the government and with the uh, education department about the lack of uh, American Sign Language being afforded to her son Carter in the classroom. I'm, I'm 100% sure that's what she was referring to there. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, Linda's in the queue to talk about the National Dental Care Program. Talk away.
0: Start your day off right. Get the latest updates on news, traffic, and weather conditions. Plus, interviews with today's newsmakers. Your go-to source before you get on the go. 530 to 9 a.m. weekdays. Your VOCM mornings.
1: Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Linda, you're on the air.
6: Hello.
7: Hi there. Hi. Hi talk about that dental uh, the thing that they've got for the government to help the seniors. I think it's great but I mean in the, in the, in the beginning it was uh, 87 and older that's right and now it's 72 and older mm-hmm. like I work all my life, I'm 64 I, my teeth my bottom teeth are all rotten I've got a, I just paid over $700 for full plate denture because I'm still working out in the workforce and I've got to look, you know, decent. But there's nothing for anybody else, like anybody that don't have insurance, don't have like to work all your life, and the government just give. I mean, I I think it's great. I mean, I know because dental is a big part of your health as well, like your your you know your physical health. It can cause problems if you, if your teeth are bad. And but they're not, there's nothing there for us lower folks like that can't afford insurance, like you're only working minimum wage?
1: Well, there is. It's coming for all eligible Canadians. Eventually, So, the, here's the issue. So, it's all about how much money you make, number one. And okay. the application schedule, 87 and above, was December last year. 77 to 86 is uh, last month. 72 to 76 began today. 70 to 71 in March. 65 to 69 in May. Then they go on to uh, folks with a disabled tax credit, then children under 18. All remaining eligible Canadian residents starting in 2025. So, of the I 9 million people... None of this. Yeah, that's coming. So, you'll be <laughs> okay. in that category. So, by the okay. end of this year, all nine million we're told will who are eligible will be able to avail of the program.
7: Okay, because now my husband, I mean, he's 68, he had a stroke five years ago, so he's like he's disabled, he hasn't got one tooth left in the bottom of his thing, and he's on the disability tax credits, he's been since he's been had his stroke, but uh, and his
1: window opens up in June.
7: In June. Yep. Yeah. Because he hasn't got one tooth left in the bottom of his mouth. Yeah,
1: it's it's a major problem for a lot of folks, seniors or otherwise. So, any adult with a valid disability tax credit certificate, that portal opens for them this June.
7: Oh, well, now that's good to hear. Now, where where would I get? Where would I find that, like an application or whatever?
1: Well, you can do it online. Uh, okay. It's really, do you use the, the internet, I assume so? I do. Okay. Yes, yes. So if you just go Canada Dental Care Program, the very first link will probably be the Government of Canada's website itself, so Canada.ca, but I would just Google Canada Dental Care Program, and the first bunch will be all the information, eligibility requirements, application uh, right there online, when you can visit your oral, oral care provider, all those types of services that are covered. So just Google that up, and it'll be right, right at the top of the search.
7: thank you. Thank you very much. No problem, Linda. None of that. (laughs) Yeah,
1: well, hopefully that makes you feel a bit better.
7: It does. Terrific. You're welcome. Great. Thanks. Have a good day. You too. Bye, Linda. Bye
1: bye. All right, let's keep rolling here. Before we get to the break, uh, line number four, Daryl Harding, you're on the air.
8: How you doing, Patty? Okay. How about you? Not too bad, sir. I tried to get in yesterday, and you're you're very full. Uh, So uh, what I want to do today, first of all, I heard Kim, and God bless her heart. I want to uh, send out a huge congratulations. Team, um, they increased their vote by four percent of the popular vote, which is which is a good result. And congratulations, of course, to Fred for for his team's uh, success and his success in their campaign. <coughs> Excuse me, they increased the popular vote by uh, well four. Uh, Fourteen percent, I think, or something around the there. But anyway, uh, yeah. everybody worked hard. I had a very small team, and I appreciate everybody that voted for me. And my team worked very hard as well. And uh, it bodes well for the district because uh, you had four good candidates come out there that wanted to serve, and everybody got messages from the doors, which were brought, you know, through the media and through the through the interviews with everybody. So uh, I'm sure Fred heard the messages that he heard plus he heard the messages that we trans uh, transferred to him with the, with the conversations that we had during our interviews and stuff like that so hats off to everybody the uh, also the I almost forgot the uh, progressive conservative candidate uh, she had a, a mountain to climb because uh, you know she was coming in behind uh, an MHA David Brazel, who had support across party lines um, and was uh, you know he has big shoes to fill, um, and, but she did a good campaign. I mean, she did a good, uh, she got a, a, a decent turnout and she got a, a decent uh, showing. Uh, I don't think it should be interpreted that the candidate um, was was not successful. I think the campaign just wasn't successful in a, in a little bit of a red tide that came in Conception Bay.
1: Fair enough. And as I've said to all candidates, regardless of the ballot, what ballot you're on, municipally, provincially, federally, it does take a lot to even want to run for office. And then even if, when you get elected, you find out that governing is a little bit harder than people think as well. So uh, congratulations on taking a swing at it, Darryl. Uh Anything else before I have to get to another caller?
8: Uh, yeah, just uh, looking forward now to getting back into the municipal seat, working close with all councillors, uh, including uh, and Neary, and then having a good relationship with the new M- MHA to look out for the best interests of our municipality. So thanks a lot. And again, kudos to you guys and your team with David for giving us the place where we can we can listen and uh, we can learn and we can uh, communicate.
1: So, I appreciate the time. Thanks, Darrell. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, Dave says another one before the break. All right, then, line number seven. Cecil, you're on the air. Petty? Yes.
9: Boy, you had a great show.
1: <laughs> Thanks.
9: I don't know what we'd do without you.
1: I think you'd be okay.
9: Anyway, um, I'd like to congratulate Fred Hutton. Okay. And I think and Neri probably would have won uh, only for uh, the NDP. Because those eight hundred votes—I got a feeling most of them would have went to uh, the PCs. But in the meantime, uh, the NDP is a wasted vote. They're, they're not going to get anywhere in Newfoundland. <laughs>
1: I don't know if there's such a thing as a wasted vote. I think that the NDP uh, provide yeoman service in the House of Assembly. I think Jim din has been pretty effective as a, an opposition politician, whether or not they're ever going to be able to, A, field a, an entire slate of 40 candidates in the next general election, which they've struggled to do in the past, whether or not they're ever going to clear their high watermark, which I think is five seats in the House of Assembly at one time, one sitting. So we'll see where people go. But I think they they've got... A measure of support out there in the community. Whether or not it's ever going to be uh, able to achieve more than so-called third-party status, I really don't know.
9: Well, they certainly put on a big campaign, and uh, with the Newfoundland Labrador uh, Federation of Labour and the unions and and all the rest, they they put on a massive campaign. They couldn't even get a thousand votes. So anyway, that's my opinion on it all. Fair enough. Okay, you have a great day.
1: Same to you, Cecil. All the best. All the best. Take care bye all, right, you know, all of that said, of course, your opinion on how and why people vote the way they do. Fair enough. But the NDP did increase their vote tally and percentage of the vote in Conception Bay, East Bell Island this go round. And uh, I guess we'll hear from... I don't know when there's going to be a, a by-election call for the now vacancy, but Derek Bragg has passed. That's uh, Fogo Cape Friels. You would imagine sooner than later, unless... There's going to be a general, but after you get through a by-election victory in a David Brazel or a Tory Stronghold down at Conception Bay, East Bell Island, maybe, just maybe, they'll hang tight and just have another by-election before we all go to the polls. Let's take a break. Do not go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Kevin, you're on the air. Hello? Hi, Kevin. How are you? I'm doing okay, sir. How uh, about you?
9: My name is Patrick, and I'm phoned from 196.masterstruck.com.
1: Oh, the name is Kevin on my screen. Patrick, welcome to the show. So, 196 uh, Buckman. I go by Patrick, right? Very well. You can go by Patrick. Good for me. Yes. Yeah.
9: And, uh, anyhow, uh, right, uh, the, the plough came down, and it blocked me in the back of the air, and I can't get it out, so, you I made it through your all right right?
1: Okay. And so you, you need know, someone to come I down think? with a plough and help you out?
9: No, no, just, uh, just make a scoop. That's take the cross off, right? And out of go Someone just driving along, might have dropped a plow, and just, you know. Yeah, I get it. I know. You know what I mean? I don't. I don't uh, want nobody to clean everything
1: out for me. You know. Just get the heavy stuff at the end for you. Yes, that's right, sir, yes. Okay, so Patrick lives you know. at 196 Buckmaster Circle. There's a huge number of pickup trucks with plows on them these days. When I was just I know, driving home I yesterday, I noticed it. Okay, it so It takes about a minute or two, right? That's right. So if you know. you're listening to the program and you've got a blade on the front of your truck and you're in and around Buckmaster Circle, if you can drop the blade at 196 Buckmasters, just take that heavy bit of stuff away from the end of Patrick's driveway, we'd all appreciate it. He's 82 years oh. of age. He needs a hand. Well, thank you very much, sir. No problem. Let me know how it works out. Yes, I will. Okay, great. Take care, Patrick. Good luck. All right, there you go. Got to be a blade in the neighborhood. Going to give that a quick swat. Let's go to line number one say good morning to Connie Pike with Miles for Smiles. Good morning, Connie. You're on the air. Good
10: morning, Patty. How's it going?
1: Doing okay. You?
10: Good. 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 Um, Patty, I was calling to give you the numbers for January month uh, for children, um, and child abuse cases in our 10 provincial courts. So um, it was rather high in January. There were 377 cases called, um, 69 offenders. So uh, I decided that I'd kind of wait till the end of the month uh, because to let you know because uh, there were two added in January, as we know, with the... Uh, the fire department uh, gentleman there who was uh, alleged to have committed two offenses. So it, it bought the total of to 377. And, Patty, the other thing I, I really wanted to mention this morning I don't know if anyone had an opportunity to uh, take in some of the hearings in Washington yesterday about the social media sites and how they're supposed to be protecting children, but they're not, of course. Um, you know, I started thinking there were over 70 parents in the room, by the way, who had lost children. And, and it seems it could be directly linked to social media posts and uh, threats that were made to them, bullying, uh, daring them to kill themselves, telling them to kill themselves, so on. Um, so it got me to thinking about the protections, you know, that we provide. For our children i mean from from the time they're infants, we put bumper pads around their cribs, so you know they won't hurt they won't hurt themselves. We have uh been told by government the types of car seats we must have for our children. they have to meet certain specifications and booster seats, even you know it, Children have to be a certain weight and so on. And in airplanes, we must use seatbelts. Children, we put helmets on them when they're riding their bikes. We do a lot of things to try to protect our children. But then they get old enough and they enter this realm, this Pandora's box of social media, and it's like a free-for-all. And, you know, if people think that... uh, Children are doing this later in their teen years so they can make up their own minds and make their own decisions about it. That's not true because uh, just, for instance, in terms of viewing pornography, uh, 80% of adolescents and young adults have viewed some sexually explicit material, and most of that is through social media. And uh, the average age... Of children viewing this is 12 years of age. So, you know, this is affecting very young children. And then when I heard Mark Zuckerberg say that to him there's no causal link between social media and mental health issues of children, I I was ready to scream at the TV set. I mean, there's so much information and so many studies to the contrary. Uh, I I don't know where he was coming from with that statement.
1: Well, it's because it's demonstrably untrue. I mean, there's a direct causal link. They're even doing studies now, not talking about anecdotal evidence and what someone thinks or says. They're actually studying brain waves and brain patterns as it pertains to the amount of time you spend on social media. So, And you talk about protection. What's unfortunately being protected here are the tech giants. Which is yeah. absolutely pathetic. They are crafting federal legislation to make them legally liable for sharing the harmful content to minors. And it's not just in the world of porno- pornography that you can get caught up in the swirl of digital abuse. We're talking about things like eating disorders, the unrealistic beauty standards that, you know, what you see, the vast majority of what you see is real anyway. Nobody lives those types of glamorous lives unless you're the Taylor Swifts of the world. So we just... We're being bombarded with images that are just unmanageable, they're unrealistic. You talk about access for sexual predators to youth via digital means, and we've told those stories on this program, and we have to. They talk about the addictive features, the pheromone and the adrenaline rush when someone likes your post or your picture or something like that. So the protection unfortunately, is not good enough for those who are being impacted. But the protection for the tech companies is absolutely ludicrous. And everything that Mark Zuckerberg says in defense of Facebook and the role they've played in disinformation and all the bullying that goes on is ridiculous. I just don't know how that man can sleep at night when he says things like that.
10: I totally, totally agree. I mean, I used pornography as an example, one example, but you're right. There's a myriad of issues that get created and uh, all these unrealistic expectations. And the more children delve into, uh, you know, social media, the more... Uh, addicted to it, that they become. The greater their isolation, the greater their loneliness. And you know, we've talked before, you and I, and many other people who've called your show, talked about that upriver effect. And you know, we're we're watching children fall into the river right now, and we're fishing them out down the way when they're adults with all these mental health issues. If they survive the river, you know, and uh, I, I just don't get that we're not putting two and two together there's um a doctor um Scott Galloway I think his name is he he teaches in the states and I've heard a couple of his podcasts and he specializes in this area talking about the links between social media and children and it's absolutely Mind-blowing, you know, the, the way the studies are going now. And you're right, there's more and more being done, and rightly so. But I really think that we have to hold these companies to account. I think that all of these things are connected, that there's a reason that we're seeing, you know, on average here in our own little province, well over 300 cases per month being heard in court. There's a reason for that. And uh, it's not going to decrease unless we all band together and do something about it.
1: I appreciate the time this morning, Connie. We've cleared 10 o'clock, but uh, as usual, we appreciate the update as traumatic as it is.
10: Thank you, Patty.
1: Take good care. You too. All right. Bye-bye. All right. So while we wait for the province to figure out the ground and air ambulance, there's an RFP out there for someone to create, design, manage the ambulatory system. Then there was that note that was sent around to members who are first responders and other support staff about not allowed to use the phrase red alert. The industry standard for when there's an ambulance call and there's not one available, we're going to talk about that or whatever's on your mind right after the news. Don't go away.
11: Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your requests to IrishNL at VOCM.com or submit them online at VOCM.com.
1: Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number four. Say good morning to the president of the Paramedics Association of Newfoundland and Labrador. That's our friend Rodney Goody. Rodney, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you today? Best kind. How about you?
12: I'm optimistic, but still having uh, you know some frustrations and uh, concerns about uh, the progressive uh, nature of our uh, paramedic service here in our, in our province.
1: Optimism based on what, Rodney?
12: Well, we do see uh, you know movement forward with this RFP that's been uh, put forward uh, for a management system to come in and uh, manage the entire uh, one entity uh, system for the entire province for all ambulances in the entire province. Uh, the concern and the frustration is, uh, you know, the RFP was supposed to close last week on January 20, uh, 22nd, and then we got notice that uh, <clears throat> the uh, deadline for that has been pushed back now to April. So we continuously see delays uh, with regards to Uh, Action with the uh, paramedicine system here in our province. We've been saying for years that, you know, these changes need to happen. And, uh, you know, once we start to see some light at the end of the tunnel, uh, the tunnel seems to get a little bit longer, uh, this time moving another 10 weeks. And, you know, that's still not a a firm deadline uh, with things progressively always changing uh, with it being a fluid system. So we we could potentially see changes to that uh, deadline. And even once that deadline comes and goes and the RFP is Um, put forward or if the the bids come forward for those RFPs. uh, There's still no uh, clear deadline or clear time frame on when uh, this management company will be overseeing the entire operations of the entire province at that time as well.
1: Do you have any concerns simply with the concept of a private company coming in to design and manage the ambulatory system ground and air?
12: We've seen it done in other provinces, and uh, what uh, we've been uh, voicing concerns to the government is is basically to learn the mistakes from the other provinces. Uh, recently, last year, uh, Nova Scotia did an audit of their ambulance service, and uh, one of the biggest things they actually learned from their audit is uh, the government itself was actually at fault in a number of situations uh, where they're not enforcing the contract. And this is something we've been continuously uh, voicing concerns to the government about, is that government um, needs to you know, do an excellent job of uh, ma- uh, maintaining and uh, overseeing the contract when this management company contract is finalized. If we just let uh, the management company do whatever they want, run the company, run the ammo system however they want in this province, we'll just continuously be back to where we are today kind of thing. So, uh, you know, the Grant audits, the Grant Thornton audit uh, in 2019 showed that, you know, there was inefficiencies in the system, uh, that the government was not uh, holding the private and uh, community Mostly private operators uh, accountable for their contract uh, for not meeting the uh, contract uh, deadlines and everything. And uh, so, without the government, uh, you know, holding account uh, to this uh, contractor, then you know it's not worth the the paper it's written on. Essentially, so we really need the government to uh, stand true to this contract whenever it is. Uh, finalized and said and done. And if they actually do that, then it can be a beneficial uh, system being put forward.
1: Yeah, because you just think back to how the government treated say, for instance, Wade Smith. And Smith's ambulances pretty heavy-handedly, based on the commentary we've heard from Mr. Smith himself, so he can only hope that level of uh, monitoring and enforcement is availed to this uh, private operator. We don't even know what it's going to look like. You know, it's a good idea to consolidate all those 60 contracts, but whether it's going to be some hub-and-spoke model, we don't know if it's going to be more ambulance or fewer, more paramedics or fewer. We really don't have much meat on that bone as of yet, but I suppose the work is ongoing, even though it's been pushed down the road a little bit again. When you talk about the lack of enforcement and meeting contractual obligations, are there any specifics you can share, whether it be in the province of Nova Scotia or elsewhere?
12: Uh, like I said, in Nova Scotia, they did not at, uh, to look at that hand, so it was just uh, not um, um, meeting the contract uh, requirements of enforcing uh, timeframes, enforcing, um, you know, just things in the contract overall. So uh, I'm, not, I'm not able to uh, give specifics on that uh, off the top of my head without uh, having the report in front of me. Uh, but it's just basically about uh, holding the accountability uh, towards that contract uh, that needs to be done. So uh, here in our province, you know, like I said, we just need this contract that um, once it is set in stone, that, you know, it's held accountable to whoever the management company is established, that they can't just uh, say, oh, you know, we can't make the needs of this contract, and the government just allows them to uh, not meet that component of the contract and still get paid their money uh, to do what they're supposed to do, even though they're not uh, meeting the needs of the contract. So,
1: Yeah, and we had some uh, monies that were misappropriated or kind of gone missing here in this province not, not that long ago. Do we have yeah. any understanding about who's going to represent the paramedics? You know, because there's kind of a splintered group out there now, not all represented under one umbrella, which is not helpful. So do we know what's going to happen on that front, Rodney?
12: no uh, so a you know that's a union perspective which as an association uh, we don't follow under that umbrella however um, with that uh, perspective I mean there's still a lot of uh, questions that are coming to us uh, from members uh, concerns about what's going to happen what that's going to all look like uh, today there's uh, I think four different uh, unions that represent paramex across the province so in regards to how that's going to look we still don't know and that's part of the issue that we're having uh, with all of our communications with government is that we have a lot of questions and we don't have answers for and and government doesn't have answers to give us either. Um, they keep, uh, you know, the transparency is the big concern that we always have here. Uh, we, like I said, we, there's a lot of unanswered uh, components here that we don't have the, the <clears throat> we don't know what's gonna look like, we don't know what the system's gonna look like, we don't know who's gonna represent the medics as far as a union perspective. We don't know how many trucks. We don't know how many paramedics we're going to need. Uh, we don't know any of that information, and, and this is where the transparency aspect comes into play. Even with regards to you know the contract deadlines, the RFP deadline, um, you know that was something we had to go find out that the extension uh, was delayed until April. Uh, so just information needs to be. Better uh, giving it to the practitioners, the frontline practitioners, so they know exactly what is happening in their profession here in the province instead of it being kept secret all the time. Uh, We even have the uh, regulations for the uh, Emergency Health and Paramedicine Services Act that, uh, you know, that that act was passed in 2018. Uh, Regulations were supposed to be uh, tabled and passed uh, six months later. And still today, we're still waiting on those. Uh, We are being told there's a draft uh, model. Uh, that hopefully will be uh, in the the House of Assembly uh, for the spring sitting, but even that's not a uh, set in stone for sure going to happen. So again, we're just uh, we're told to sit and wait and uh, you know see what's going to happen. But you know for us that's not uh, sufficient enough. Uh, we need this information we need to know what this profession in our province is gonna look like and the the, pay, the patients need to know what this uh, system is gonna look like as
1: well. 100%. I'm curious uh, your thoughts on the whole issue that came from On High, telling first responders and others involved with the ambulance world that they can't use the phrase red alert. I suppose government thinks that it's a scary phrase that puts the fear of God into folks when they hear the numbers of red alerts that happen. It is the national standard uh, about uh, trying to get a count on the number of times 911 is called and there's no ambulance available. What do you think that implication is? Because if we can't track it, then we don't have a firm understanding of exactly what's happening and where we need to improve the system. So when that note was shared, what was your initial thought?
12: Yeah, i never seen the uh, note itself. Uh, never came across my desk, but I've heard from our members about it. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's not surprising. It's something that's came up before about not using Red Alert. And uh, the only rationale that uh, I can see is simply that um, you know, it's more difficult to A tip. Um, you know, no ambulance is available. Uh, it's very easy to A just simply Red Alert and to find uh, that information so it seems like it's just trying to hide the information uh, hearing from members you know red alerts is continuously happening daily multiple times a day even uh, so it's definitely a concern uh, on our perspective and again it's all the reason why we need this system to change and these continuous delays are going to continuously push back any pr- uh, progressive changes that happen so if we need more ambulances in the system uh, the changes to this management company uh, the delay on this management company coming in is going to delay any new trucks or any new uh, supports being put into the system. Um, overall, we also have to look at, you know, I've mentioned before about the overall system. We just happen to be at the bottom of the totem pole for in regards to how everything kind of comes down. Uh, the lack of nursing home beds means uh, there's more patients in the, on the floor up in the hospital. Uh, that means that there's less beds for patients in the emergency department to be moved to, uh, which then uh, limits how many hospital beds are in the emergency department, which limits how many patients we can offload at a time, which then ultimately means to us uh, sitting in the hallways with our patients on stretchers, waiting for uh, those few beds to clear up uh, to allow us to offload our patients so it's a trickle effect down through the entire system and so it's not just simply you know throwing more ambulances will temporarily fix the issue but really we've got to look at the big picture of what is the problem uh, with our overall system and I know our health accord we're trying to look at it but we also need to move a lot faster on some of these initiatives uh, to find out where the true issue is and a lot of uh, things one of the issues I think we can even send back to even uh, some retention recruitment issues we hear from all sorts of different Professions of uh, you know short staff uh, with uh, doctors, nurses, family doctors, uh, paramedics, uh, RTS. All these professions are all short staffed at the moment. And so, if we look at recruitment and retention of why are we losing these practitioners? Why are they not sticking around in our province? Why are they not sticking around in these professions? Uh, we need to resolve those issues to really resolve the big issues as well.
1: Here, here. Appreciate the time, Roddy. Anything else? No, I think that's pretty much it, Patty. Thanks for your time this morning. I appreciate yours. Thanks, Roddy. Stay in touch. Okay, bye-bye. Rodney Goody, President of the Paramedics Association. Okay, let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about the start of ice fishing season and also the issue regarding the federal government's cap or the 35% reduction in the number of international student visas that are going to be allotted over the next couple of years. We're going to speak with the uh, Canadian Federation of Students International Student Rep, the Shireen Merchant, after this, don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Say good morning to the International Student Rep of the Canadian Federation of Students, NL-Shireen Merchant. Good morning, Shireen. You're on the air.
13: Good morning. Welcome to the show. Thank you.
1: So there's a lot to this conversation regarding the federal government. Uh, In my opinion, using international students as a bit of a scapegoat for their own shortcomings on the housing file. When you heard the cap was being imposed, let's talk about your initial thoughts, what you think the ramifications might be.
13: I completely agree with you. That's how, at the moment, all the international students feel. And when I heard about this, I was extremely disappointed that... We pay our taxes. We do everything that we are supposed to do. Uh, We're we trying to be good residents, and everything is done properly on our behalf. But when it comes to government paying their dues, uh, I think they're, they just take a step back, and international students are definitely scapegoats for any crisis that they are trying to cover at the moment
1: there's, you know, if they're trying to include housing issues and also these so-called sham institutions, for my money, you start with shutting down student visas for any of those institutions that are not providing a high caliber of education, or are not providing a meaningful diploma, because if that becomes the case, they go by the wayside as opposed to starting at the other end of the spectrum, which, which is the student themselves.
13: Yeah, like if you if you take example... Uh, from University of Memorial University our uh, fees got increased uh, and there are no changes in education system I don't see there is an update Uh, things are getting better administration is getting better I don't see anything getting better it's just the fee fees are just they keep increasing that Uh, and there are so many other things that we have to pay for but we don't see a change at all
1: I'll get your thoughts on this. So we will point to the private market purpose-built, uh, purpose-built uh, rental units In a large part, there's been some big investors and hedge funds have come to the country, they've gobbled up a lot of housing and turned it into student rental market, which has been hugely problematic, not only for international students, but for the renting public at large. My thoughts would be, if we're going to have these universities and colleges get students internationally with the high tuition that they pay, maybe, just maybe, it should be the responsibility of the university and or the college to take care of student housing, whether it be on campus or off, but that should be more their responsibility then the private market tried to accommodate something that's a moving target. What do you think?
13: Yeah, I, I, w- I would kind of agree with it. But also, there are a lot of students who cannot afford uh, student housing. It might become sometimes very expensive. And if you see a lot of university have additional uh, costs added to student housing, like you have to have a meal added to that. And a lot of people prefer cooking themselves or having, you know, a separate meal uh which is not provided at the university so i feel like those additional fees sometimes students are not able to pay that so they choose to live off campus uh in their in these kind of private rentals uh which are more affordable but i also want to see like universities taking charge on these because if they are providing everything which is necessary Which is like basic right of a student. Like, if they don't have, if they are not from here and if if they require housing and if it's not affordable, then I feel like they are not leaving any choice for the student. They would have to opt for it. But it's a big part at university as universities and these colleges as well that if they would cater and think about students and make a cause that would be affordable and students can like. Live better, then I don't think so we would have to choose to live off campus. It just that's not the case. They keep adding more and more different kind of fees to it, and not a lot of students can afford it either they like we are at a time where students have to choose between food and education. so you tell me like how i I, I kind of don't understand how on our part could be better, but definitely I would see universities doing better in this case.
1: And this next topic wouldn't necessarily be your Baliwick, but when we know the student population of international students at Memorial University is around 5,100. At the College of mm-hmm. North Atlantic, about 671 are the most recent numbers I've seen. If there's any implication to student visas regarding those two institutions in this province, the likelihood is, for the revenue lost, we'll just see another increase in fees or tuitions for domestic students. So I know that's not your Baliwick as an international student rep, but that would be a larger implication. Then there's some quality of life issues regarding international students. You know, and the hope for me would be, it's a strange place to start as immigration minister or the housing minister because when we talk about skilled newcomers, if you're being schooled at Memorial University, we can only hope that with your graduate degree, whether or not you do an advanced degree, we can only hope you stay. I mean, that would be the ultimate goal for everyone involved for all the right reasons. So. When we talk about international students and quality of life, you know, whether it be the inability to get a work visa so that the spouse can join the student here in the country, and the work hours for students that was a real concern across the international student body. Talk about some of those quality of life issues and where the system be improved.
13: I think, as I mentioned, like, at, at this point, students are forced to make a choice between education and food, which is ridiculous. These kind of, uh, like, we are completely being exploited. Uh, I know there there are so many times that students uh, struggle with mental health issues, especially international students, and there are not many resources. Like, if you go to uh, a therapist, they won't understand because we come from a different culture and there there are so many different other things to be considered. And it's it's not diverse out there. Uh, we struggle finding jobs. Uh, a lot of students who graduated from memorial universities, a lot of times they don't find a job within the province, outside province. There is like it it almost feels like there is no future. So I'd, if if we are getting those degrees and they are seem to be good degrees, then why there are no job opportunities where we we are being told that once you graduate with this degree you'll be able to find jobs first there's no job then if you if you today if you go out get groceries it's way too expensive you you check the housing prices you cannot afford rentals even student housing has become way expensive over the time so with these all added fees not just a person a student's mental health is being affected physical health is also being affected that will also affect their education how will i be able to go to my classes when i'm not feeling well when i'm in complete distress all the time so these are some of the issues that i see students are facing day to day and there there are no solutions sometimes we are just like if i want to get a medical checkup I have to sit in emergency for eight hours. It is emergency, but I still have to wait for eight hours. So it's hard to find family doctors as well. So these are some of the issues that I feel like are very common, very general. We've been talking about these for years now, and we still don't see any changes. If there are psychologists, therapists graduating from Memorial Universities, why they are, why they are not able to practice it here? Why I don't see any a di- diverse therapist here because it's very hard. It's very hard to find and there are not a lot of resources. Housing, housing crisis is an another level. Students are, it just, it keeps piling on and on and on and I don't see uh, government doing anything about it.
1: And many of those issues you just pointed to are experienced by the general public. I think those types of issues are really quite common across the board, including international students. Uh, Shereen, before we say goodbye this morning, would you like to say anything else?
13: Yeah, I would just want politicians and uh, government to really think about it and you stop using international students as a scapegoat. Uh, don't hide your the, the crisis that you have created you should find long-term uh solutions for these for all the housing crisis and stop blaming marginalized groups international students and you should remove this gap because we are here to get education but we are unable to get a proper education here because of the other issues that we are facing it might look to the outside world that when a student comes to Canada and they they flourish, we struggle a lot here. And I feel like people are not seeing that. And it's high time that, you know, government take action against it and do do something about it rather than using us as scapegoats. Yeah, that's all I want to say.
1: Appreciate your time this morning. Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Shereen Merchant is a member of the Canadian Federation of Students. She's the international student rep in NL. Let's take a break right on time. When we come back, Barry's in the queue to talk about ice fishing. Don't go away. Stay informed
0: and have your say on the news of the day with your VOCM. Join Linda Swain weekday afternoons from 4 to 5 p.m. for an hour of talk and discussion with decision makers and listeners like you. News talk on your VOCM.
1: Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, Barry. You're on the air.
9: Good morning, Patty. Thanks for taking my call. No problem. Can you hear me? Okay.
1: Yep, yeah, Go right ahead.
9: Yeah. So, Patty, today is the opening day of ice fishing season. With uh, well, just uh, some warnings to put out there, that is, uh, some regions in the uh, in the province, uh, the ice is not safe especially here on the avalan peninsula so uh you know they say you need four inches of ice to safely walk on Uh, i prefer six inches of ice myself however that's up to you you should uh, check the ice as you go out use an ice auger or an axe uh if you're out on ice fishing it's also a good idea patty to wear a life jacket and life jacket is in case you should have got to fall in. Um, we use the 1101 principle. I'm touching a bit on life-saving society there now. 1101 principle, which we talked about before, that's the first minute is the gas reflex, um, which uh, the cold water makes you gasp. If, uh, if you're underwater and you gasp, you can bring a lot of water into your lungs, which could be very detrimental. The idea of the light jacket then, it will. if you do go through, you will bob up almost instantaneously. So it's very important to, to wear that. Um, the daily bag limit for trout is uh, 12 trout. Uh, per person per day.
1: Just before we move on to some of the rules, you know, even yeah. in the world of checking the ice, it's always a wise idea. There's a couple of other factors people should consider. If the ice is anything but white or blue, don't go on it because it's just not safe. If it's gray or any other darkish color, it's very likely not safe. There's also plenty of concerns and people should know better about uh, setting up your ice fishing hole or your shack or even going for a skate on the pond if you're anywhere close to a tributary or an inlet or a river or something like that because generally the ice is quite soft in those areas so avoid those put a couple of those ice picks which are extremely helpful if you're trying to get out of the pond after you've fallen through the ice you know elbows up kick your feet use the ice picks haul yourself out maybe try not to do things like this alone which is also potentially a risky situation so just those couple of tips on the the life safety issue and then we get into bag limit so let's move on to the bag limit unless you want to pick up on something I just said
9: that's very good summary, there, Patty. I'm I'm, I'm impressed.
1: <laughs> okay, I'll take it.
9: <laughs> uh, Patty, yes, uh, the bag limit is 12 trout per person per day, but that varies in different regions in the province. So it's up to the, each angler to uh, know what the limits are. Uh, for conservation-wise, it's okay to catch your limit, Patty, but it's also better though to limit your catch.
13: As
1: usual, I mean, we talk about these types of bag limits or uh, total number of, say for instance, seabirds you're allowed to take. People just end up throwing them away the next season because they're still occupying the bottom of their freezer. They're all burnt up and they're of no value to anybody. So, yeah, take what you're going to actually eat or take what you're actually going to share. And you're right, the, the bag limit is different in different parts of the province. Certainly Labrador, uh, Lake Trout is, I believe, only three you're allowed. So be careful to know what, what the angler's guide says because your ignorance is no defense.
9: Absolutely, Patty, Absolutely, and uh, I also like to touch on something you just brought up is about the uh, from sharing the harvest perspective. We hear lots of people saying, "Oh, I'm going to get some trout now and uh, give to a senior citizen." This and that, and everything else, and that's great. Uh, I'd like to announce a contest. I don't know what the prize is going to be. The prize will be about fifty dollars, uh, in which I'm offering two anglers to who go ice fishing to share uh, their harvest with the with a senior citizen. That's food bank with a senior citizen. And send me a picture of it. If you don't want it on Facebook, that's fine. I won't put it on Facebook. But I'll draw draw a name out of a hat and award a $50 prize.
1: Sounds good. Uh, Because the more the people are willing to share, because let's be realistic. If it's something you really enjoy doing, whether it be going for seabirds or going ice fishing, you're probably going to do it a significant number of times this year. It's very likely you're not going to eat every single morsel that you pull out of the pond or the lake. So consider to share with a senior or put it in as part of sharing the harvest. An awesome idea.
9: Thank you very much, Paddy. And uh, in conclusion, I'd like to say that, uh, you know, ch- make sure that you have a safe and successful season. Uh, make sure that you don't take any, any, any unnecessary uh, risk. If, put it in a nutshell. If you're not safe, if there's any doubt, don't go out. Make every trip a safe return trip.
1: Appreciate the time, Barry. Thanks a lot.
9: Thank you very much, Paddy,
1: and as always, it's been a pleasure. It's my pleasure, sir. Stay in touch. Thank All right, you. There we go. Ice fishing season. Good laugh. Okay, let's move on. So now we're going to talk about the 2024 red tape report card grades for this province and right across the country with our guest on line number one. Good morning, Stephen. You're on the air. Hi. Good morning, Patty. Good morning to you. Welcome to the show. So the CFIB, of course, does a lot of surveying of their members on a variety of fronts. But this issue regarding red tape and municipal renovation permitting, we have a pretty failing grade. Newfoundland and Labrador gets an overall grade of F. Help us break it down.
4: Yeah, uh, the report was recently released, and I agree the CFIB do release some interesting reports and data. Um, I urge your listeners to go to their website. There's a a wealth of information there. This recent report came out in January of 2024. Uh, Not to pick on the municipality here in St. John's too much, Uh, it, it seems like The nation is failing um, a a number of uh, stakeholders, whether you want to suggest the rental market or small contractors, developers who are in the queue to get these types of permits. This specific report speaks to an example case of if you wanted to do a – excuse me – a. a smaller renovation for, like, a basement suite, they speak to an estimated cost of project $20,000. And, yeah, I mean, the report is essentially scathing, uh, particularly of of some on the high end of the cost, the Vancouver's, the Torontos uh, of the world. And, and I think St. John's slips in about the middle of the pack as it relates to permitting costs. But my specific comment, Patty, regarding this comes from my vantage point uh i I have been in the past uh, a smaller time developer builder renovator uh, predominantly in downtown st john's and what i can speak to specifically is the information exchange with city staff in the planning and uh, development uh, departments and building departments and what i would loosely classify as almost obstructionist type behavior, uh, trying to get people to call you back or simply responding to basic emails is a very tedious and arduous task. Uh, A a friend of mine uh, uh, in the, uh, the larger, what you might say building development business famously said to me, after I did a project with him a number of years ago, he said, if I had a small piece of land in downtown st john's or the general area uh you know that was right for development someone gave it to me i give it back to them it, it, it's just been such a, uh, a a challenging time and and like i said the various stakeholders the rental market the small business guys who uh, are, are trying to proceed in this fashion it, it's been a uh, It's been an uphill battle, that's for
1: sure. You know, because when government talks about this, now I think the city of St. John's, we had Ron Ellsworth on the show some while ago talking about exactly this, because it is a problem. By the time you identify a piece of land or a piece of property or a house, you want to knock it down or renovate, by the time you do that, go through engineering and design, put uh, shovels in the ground, it takes so long and the carry costs are extraordinary. So people are loath to do exactly what we're talking about. What I find a little bit confusing sometimes about these reports is just how we're supposed to digest the scores from other provinces for instance there's three components that make up the 100 percent so it's regulatory accountability regulatory burden and political priority which is really where we have to focus when we talk about permitting time uh, timelines but like for instance in the province of alberta on the regulatory issue an a minus and the regulatory burden an a and the political priority an a But what are they doing differently? Is it simply about uh, fast-tracking permit applications? Or that's where, you know, I think the CFIB will probably try to get someone on so they can describe best practices and compare and contrast Newfoundland and Labrador because in the Alberta scores for A's across the board, for the same three categories were FFD. So what are we doing and what are they doing better elsewhere? That's where the the reports get a little bit jumbled for me
4: agreed and and that will be interesting perhaps to hear from someone at CFIB uh, re- regarding some of the contextual uh, questions or or recommendations there is a recommendation section um, I, I I don't suggest that maybe all municipalities need to uh, latch their caboose uh, onto that but 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 specifically in st John's uh, I, I and I and I do commend Councillor Ellsworth, he now carries the housing file, uh, the finance file, the affordable housing file as well. Um, and and Councillor Ellsworth is able to be engaged. He's open to discussion and he does have, I believe some background in housing and development. Uh, and I have met with him in the past and I, and I commend him for trying to make a change. I have also met with Councillor Burton in the past. She is the lead for planning and built heritage for the municipality of of St. John's. Um, Able to be engaged, a competent councillor. I would suggest though Councillor Burton does lack some experience and I believe practical application uh, when it comes to certain building and planning development practices, Um, And what can I say? Uh, I'm talking about Ward 2. That's often where you hear, Patty, of people with contentious issues because building lots, because homes don't fit that cookie-cutter definition of what you might see in newer home construction, say, in subdivisions. But the Ward 2 councillor, Councillor Ravencroft, has been absolutely absent and unable— to be contacted on any of these issues. That's been somewhat of a disappointment uh, during my time down here.
1: Yeah, and of course, you've got some complexities associated with heritage designations and stuff in that particular zone or ward, which makes it even more complicated and costly and frustrating than it necessarily should be so we've got to get this right you know inside the provinces own five-point housing plan one of the double-edged swords or pardon me that's not the right way to put it one of the double victories is the point where there's up to forty thousand dollars of a forgivable loan to create a basement suite or add a suite to your property so that's good for everybody it's good for people who own the home to add some revenue to their uh, incoming monthly statement it's also good to expand the rental market so that's a really good one but If I don't have the time or patience to navigate the municipal regulations and permitting and inspection process, if I don't have the access to a a skilled tradesperson or peoples to take on the work, then before long, folks who saw that and said, wow, that's a great plan. I'm really going to do that to my property, increase the property value, bring in additional revenue. But then they find out that it's as hard as it is. Maybe, just maybe, there'll be a, a significant percentage of folks who like the sound of it, but won't go ahead and execute.
4: Absolutely. Absolutely. And look, Patty, I don't want to take up too much of your time. Uh, 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 the, the last comment that I will put forward on this is um, uh, Councillor uh, Shani Duff, who had a lot of uh, detractors and a lot of support during her tenure down at uh, City Hall. The, the one thing that, that I heard her constantly say to the builders and developers and to young people who were considering getting involved with city council. And I think where she was one of the most effective councillors that we've had, well, during my lifetime anyways, and that is councillors willing to engage with city staff. And I don't mean at a Christmas cocktail party. I mean walking across the pedway into the annex into the offices of planning and development and engineering and asking staff specific questions why builders, developers, renovators, homeowners are being thwarted with uh, these advancements of, of trying to, like I say, renovate, build, whatever the case may be. And, and that's where I think we will get value out of the councillors that we um, elect in our various wards and are at-large and I, 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 I beg Councillor Burton and Councillor Ellsworth and, and anyone who is willing to do so specifically on these topics to engage staff and when you are asked questions by your electorate about why did it take so long? Why are the variances only being offered in these instances? Why does this require a tax amendment? Ask specifically the, the staff why these conditions are, are, are being placed. Uh, and I think one of these days, hopefully, Patty, we, we will get there. St. John's is a great place to live. It's a great place to do business. But at times, there's a lot of people out here really scratching their head when it comes to processing costs.
1: I appreciate the time this morning, Steve. Thanks.
4: Thank you, Patty, and appreciate all you do for the community with your show. Um, I'm an uh, avid listener and great supporter. Thank you. Big fan. Thanks, Steve. Okay, buddy. Okay, Cheers.
1: Man. Bye-bye. Uh, there you go. Yeah, there's a lot of work to be done. So, Dave, let's see if we can't get the CFIB to come on and speak to this particular report card. I haven't had a chance to read through the entirety of the recommendations section, but when we're looking at places that do it better or do it right – or differently, coming out with better results, be helpful to you know do the compare and contrast about for instance Alberta at the top of the board and us very much at the bottom of the board. I don't know if we were right at the very bottom, but I think we're well down there. Let's see here. No, only Manitoba fell in below our province on that front. Yikes. Okay, so getting a lot of questions about the Canadian dental care plan, and fair enough. There has been plenty of concern and confusion out there. Like, for instance, I believe the first caller of the show this morning thought that there would be no coverage for her and or her husband simply based on age. I think there's a percentage of the population, I think this is only for seniors, and not sure what's actually covered. This give you some of the recommended services that can indeed be covered by your oral health provider. So in the world of preventative services, so scaling, which is cleaning, polishing, sealants, fluoride. Then diagnostic services, which includes examinations and x-rays. Restorative services, which includes fillings. Endodontic services, which is root canal treatments. Then there's prosthodontic services, that's complete and partial removal of dentures. Periodontal services, including the deep scaling, which is the more of a gum treatment. Oral surgery services, including extractions. So those are the issues that will be covered. So it's a pretty comprehensive suite of services provided then there's confusion about when and if your age category is going to come up and the portal will be open for you So we do know back in December it was open to seniors 87 and above. For seniors 77 to 86, it starts the last month. Seniors 72 to 76 begins today. Seniors 70 to 71 starts in March. Seniors 65 years of age to 69 begins in May. Adults with a valid disability tax credit uh, certificate starts in June of this year. Children under the age of 18 also starts in June of this year. All remaining eligible Canadian residents will be covered under this national plan by the beginning of 2025 and of course 13 billion dollars so there is going to be an all-inclusive model for uninsured Canadians of which there are some 9 million so it's going to take a while for the full rollout I don't have all the rationale as to why it's so staggered I guess it's simply to accommodate the hundreds of thousands and millions of applications that will come through the door what's further complicated inside this plan is at this moment oral health care providers dentists denturists hygienists they're not even enrolled in the program. They don't know what the administrative issue is going to look like. They don't know how they're going to bill. They don't know what the fees will be. So it's fine to open the portal for potential patients. Quite another to have the healthcare professional ready to execute your appointment. Let's take a break. When we come back, good opportunity for you to join us on the show. If you're in and around town, 709 273 Elsewhere, toll-free, long distance 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. We're taking a break and then we're coming back. Welcome back to the program. One story that's just starting to get some traction, we're trying to have a better understanding of the implications of a deal between Loblaws, representing Shoppers Drug Mart, and Manulife Financial Corp. So they say that inside their specialty drug care program, there's only going to be the availability of those drugs covered by Manulife at Shoppers and nowhere else. So that, of course, will be a concern for folks who are in the smaller independent pharmacies. But here's just one very brief Twitter thread, and this is from a resident of Ontario, but I imagine it's going to be a similar story. We'll expand it to Labrador West in just a second. This person says, this is a dangerous uh, issue and it must not be allowed. I have Crohn's and there's a countrywide shortage of the drugs I need. Shoppers was useless. The only pharmacies I found that could help were independence. She's called dozens of pharmacies. Family members around Ontario have called on her behalf. No medication anywhere. Shoppers all said it was on back order. So let's just consider some of the drugs. which There's going to be 260 of these uh, medications under the specialty drug care program treating very complex and chronic or life-threatening conditions such as rheumatoid arthritis, Crohn's, multiple sclerosis, pulmonary arterial hypertension, cancer, osteoporosis and Hepatitis C. For Labrador West, as mentioned, this is a big deal. Jordan Brown, the member for the area, he tweeted out this morning, and maybe he can make time for the program if he's so inclined, is that he says 75% of the residents there are covered by Manulife Financial. The closest shopper's drug mart, 900 kilometers away. So that's going to be the case in rural, many rural and remote parts of the country. So, of course, there's many issues regarding geographical proximity to a variety of services, and it's one thing for shoppers to tell us that, uh, through Loblaws. They say, well, there's 1,800 shopper's drug marts across the country but not everyone lives close enough to a shoppers to make that convenient what does it going what's it going to mean for competition what's it going to mean for the small independent pharmacies because some of their customers or clients or patients will be coming to them for exactly these 260 medications so just think about it for a second if you're covered you have Crohn's and you're living in Lab West and you're covered by a manual life financially, you might have to change your, your insurance provider because if you need your drug for Crohn's, now they can say they can ship it to your home, but we all know up close and personal interaction with your pharmacist is also part and parcel with the want to have up close and personal relationship with one clinician or another. So 900 kilometers is the closest shopper's drug market to the folks living in Lab West. And maybe Jordan Brown would like to chime in on this. There's different reactions coming from different industry analysts, and or economists. You know, on one hand, you'll have someone say, well, this is a shady issue regarding the amount of money that can be flowing between the two. Here's one of the quotes from the news story. The significant markups charged by pharmacies for specialty drugs can play a key role in, quote-unquote, shadowy agreements with insurance companies. And this is coming from a fellow named Marc-Andre Gagnon. He's a professor at Carleton University. He focuses in on social, health, and pharmaceutical policy. He notes these drugs are already on the higher end in terms of cost. Then you go down to another school of thought is that Manulife, based on this one analyst's uh, uh, examination, says that they are using competition to try to drive down the overall price. I mean, that doesn't really pass the smell test, does it? Are there providers? trying to drive down that? Are the pharmaceutical companies doing anything or everything they can to drive down prices? Because they're not wrong. The cost of these specialty drugs are quite high in the first place. So I guess that would lead to the furthering of the conversation regarding the possibility of seeing some universal farm care legislation being tabled. There's some rumors and rumbles that possibly this March seems unlikely at this point. And to take that one step further, you wonder whether or not some of the most recent Issues regarding ethics and ethical violations and what's going on here with the inquiry to foreign interference in elections, whether that has shook the NDP to the point that they're willing and wanting to walk away for their supply and confidence agreement, which is the sole reason why the federal liberals have not had to face a confidence vote with the potential risk to see the non-confidence vote Uh, result in the call of a general election so if the NDP are not going to get that one more demand that's on their list and it's been key and they've been talking about for a long long time and that's universal pharmacare people who push back about cost understood sovereign debt is completely out of control but every examination done by folks who have much more working knowledge of it than I do, they talk about overall potential savings to Canadians as well. So we can talk about who would you rather see in any level of debt? You as the individual or government. Now at some point you're going to run out of the inability the run out of the ability to borrow long term at cheap rates, of course, and that's the huge risk. Our credit rating provincially and on the national front is still quite strong, but we have to be obviously very Careful, and the, the evaluations have to be comprehensive and all-inclusive to make sure that we're simply not uh, dealing with political demands to remain in power versus what's good public policy, a wise spend of money. So there's a lot yet to determine on that front. Let's take a break for the news. As we mentioned off the top of the show, really quite sad news coming from the world of theater and arts and the passing of Rick Boland. I knew Rick somewhat, and he was, he was a tour de force, hilarious and biting, and at his very best when doing things like participating in Rising Tides Review, which he was absolutely providing a masterclass. One of his colleagues would like to chime in about Rick's life and his passing. That's Mary Walsh right after the break. Don't go away.
0: Your voice in Newfoundland and Labrador's biggest conversation.
14: If you want to know what's happening in your province, tune in to Open Line
10: every day.
0: Have your say weekday morning starting at 9 a.m. on Open Line with Patty Daly on your VOCM.
1: Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number two and say good morning to Mary Walsh, of course, well-known comedian, actress, and writer. Good morning, Mary. You are on the air. Oh, good morning, Patty. Welcome to the show. Thank you. So the arts and the theater community, you know, a real terrible loss with Rick Baldwin's passing at the age of 70. Tell us about how, how and when you first met Rick.
14: Oh, gosh. I first met Rick when he was at Memorial in... Um I wasn't at Memorial. Uh, the only time I ever got to Memorial was the Spanish calf. But uh, he, I auditioned for him and he said my voice was wrong and stuff like that. So that was my first time meeting him. But uh, we we got to be great uh, uh, great collaborators after that. You know, what, what I wanted to talk about, Patty, was what an extraordinary um, contribution Rick uh, has made to this province. I mean, there would be no uh, Trinity uh, f- Festival if not for Rick. Rick it was Rick who had the vision. He saw Trinity in the 70s traveling with Rising Tide and the Mummers and he saw it as a he could see its potential and uh, and so the Trinity pageant Rick that idea of people walking around the town of trinity looking at the history that was all rick and of course working very closely with the brilliant donna but who has done such a fabulous job of keeping that uh, old place going where would we be without it but rick had the initial vision and uh, and he was a man of great vision and he I, I just don't know. He was so much a part of so many things. You know, the uh, when we took over Resource Centre for the Arts back in 79 uh, to make it an artist-run space, Rick was one of the uh, main players then. Uh, you know, um, oh, he and I did Hatching, Matching and Dispatching, one of my favourite shows that I've ever done in my whole life. And, you know, Rick did the, uh, did the interviews with um uh, with uh, people who ran funeral parlors, ambulance services, and uh, and wedding halls, and he could always get the best stories from people, and uh, we used all those stories in that uh, you know to improvise around in that uh, in that first go round, and we did. Uh, Rick was so he was a natural. He was just a born historian and archivist and he was passionate about Newfoundland history and Newfoundland stories, right? And it's like, you know, they say that when an older person dies, you lose a library. But when you lose somebody like Rick, uh, you lose a whole archive, really. I, anyway, it's very, very sad. Uh, he was so brilliant. I mean, he was so he was so handsome, so talented, so brilliant, so visionary. And and when he came on stage, you know, people just loved him. And it didn't matter that you were on stage with him because nobody could see you because Rick had some ineffable essence, Patty, that just made people love him as soon as he walked on the stage, you know?
1: The classic Larger Than Life. You know, picking up on Hatching, Matching, Dispatching, which really pushed the envelope for network television, a brilliant uh-huh. show, uh-huh. and what a cast. And
14: I had no idea at the time. You know, sometimes I am so stunned. Anyway, go ahead. I mean, Rick knew. You know, he meant, are you sure? You know, like, maybe we should lighten, you know, we when we were writing myself and Ed McDonald wrote it based on improvisations with Rick and Johnny Harris and, uh, you know, Mark McKinney and Sherry Sherry White and Susan Kent. And, uh, you know, we were all for it. But Rick was, uh, you know, he was thinking, what would his mother think about this? And I just dismissed it. Because remember the, you know, Sopranos said, you know, cable television had already pushed the boundaries so far, but network had not. It's like George Anthony, who was our person at CBC at the time, said it was the best cable show on network. <laughs>
1: well, Mammy Lou Fury was a pretty incredible character. Was that show born from Wake of the Week? Uh,
14: n- you know, it was... Um, many things in that show came from... Uh, many um, many stories that we used in that show came from my own experience of, uh, you know, my mom and dad dying in Conception Harbour and from Rick talking to these wonderful people. Um, the... Um, oh, my gosh... Uh, uh, Conway's, who ran a, a a funeral parlor, a garage, a wedding. They didn't actually have a wedding hall. The uh, the Conways and. Uh You know, um, there was a lot of Dick Conways in Conception Harbor. So there was, but we didn't ever put it in the show because it seemed like we would just make it up. Like there was Big Dick, Little Dick, Red Dick and Black Dick and uh, because there were so many Dick Conways. But we didn't put that in the show because we thought nobody would think that that was real and they thought we would just be making a a cheap joke, but we, we weren't. But anyway, they were wonderful. Those people were extraordinary. And so some of the stories came from Rick... Having long interviews with uh, with the with that uh, that woman who ran that and her daughter, and from my own experience of my mom and dad uh, being um, you know dying in, in conception,
1: and your mom and dad, Mary and Leo, and add to the cast yes. members of Hatching, Matching, also Susan Kent, brilliant, Sharma Jumder oh. in, the, in the casket, Brrr, still giving me oh creeps. my god,
14: I know, and Joel Hines and Sherry White and oh my god, Adriana Max. They all went on, and they're all having fabulous careers. You know what I mean. The ones who, I mean, Johnny Harris has two TV shows now. Uh, you know, you can watch him on um, Still Standing and also on Murdoch Mysteries. Right?
1: Still Standing is a really endearing show. It's a top quality broadcast. Really is. It is.
14: It, it, it's it lovely. Is. It really is. Anyway, they were so, what a what a how lucky I was to work with all of them. And we're working now to do a Halloween fury, Uh, but we don't know how to go forward at this point. Anyway, you know, we just lost Rick yesterday. And I remember Kathy Jones saying... um, you know, uh, she was watching some of the Rushes. Uh, you know, she's a friend of mine, and I worked with her for a long, long time. And she was going, and, and sometimes Rick just used to forget his lines, and I don't know what that had to do with. And so it would be sometimes frustrating. And, and then uh, and I remember Kathy watching the rough, and she was going, Rick is amazing. Rick is just amazing. And I was going, I know, he's just amazing. It doesn't matter if he's saying the right lines or not saying the right lines, whatever that presence was, it was there on stage, it was there on film, it was there on TV, you know
1: and now you as a comedian the political satirist as well you know rick really put off a masterclass in the rising tide review skits but, you know, i don't know if skit is the right word and maybe it, it had something to do with the fact that he was intimately involved with the ndp as a strategist a former candidate but when he offered his line about one politician or another it was a skewer that was absolutely on point hit the bu- hit the uh, bullseye every single time amazing stuff
14: I know he was incredible, wasn't he? And you know, a lifetime of being involved—you uh, know—in in looking at the history of Newfoundland politics, being involved with Newfoundland politics on a day-to-day basis, as we all are, and even being more intimately involved in Newfoundland politics by working so tirelessly. Uh, Jerry uh, uh, Jerry Rogers called me yesterday to say, you know, Rick would just zoom in and just you know get the office set up and take over and run the campaign. Uh, he was just uh, a ball of energy and goodness and he just did so much for so many and i i'd really forgotten you know yesterday when it when i got the news how much he'd done for the ndp provincially right
1: no no question i mean i heard from lorraine michael talking about his contributions which was immense given what miss michael had to say uh, mary tell us about your show what you're working on
14: Oh, I'm working on, you know, we're getting the third season of The Mrs. Downstairs out on 5-1, so we're just editing that, and I'm going to do, I'm not sure if I'm even allowed to say this, What? but I'm doing a movie in Halifax, and then I'm doing um, a show here on the 27th and the 28th that was only going to be a one-night stand, but then we sold out, and so we added, t- we added the 28th, because I'm making a comedy record, because I've been doing this show called An Evening with Mary Walsh, but I'm adding more to it, so I'm calling it a one-night stand uh, with Mary Walsh, and uh, we're um, recording an album a comedy album I, I thought comedy albums were gone I thought they'd gone the way of the dodo bird they'd gone with Richard Pryor and George Carlin but apparently they're quite popular so I'm, uh, I'm going to try my hand at one I never I was never involved on that level before
1: Yeah, another local comedian Matt Wright was nominated for a Juno a couple of years back for his comedy album so good on Matt and of course the missus yeah. downstairs is hilarious Dave Sullivan is another brilliant actor who I don't think gets enough credit for how funny he is as well so Dave's oh awesome oh my
14: god I know. I'm just editing uh, this one now. And honest to God, Patty, uh, you know, and of course, I was there when it happened because I'm the uh, director. And so that's why I'm editing it. And Dave is doing a bit of business, uh, taking some tea buns out of the oven, having a reaction. He made them himself, having a reaction to them. But it is so subtle and so good that I just laugh out loud. And I've watched it about 15, 20 times at least. And it it strikes me funny. Even when I think of it, I... of laugh
1: (laughs) no one puts a bewildered look on their face quite like dave sullivan
14: (laughs) i know i know it's amazing isn't it yeah
1: it's great stuff uh mary i'm glad we had a chance to have a couple of laughs in addition to remembering the life the contribution of your friend rick ball and so i appreciate making time for the show and i'm sorry for your loss
14: Oh, thank you so much. Thank you. I just want people to remember how pivotal Rick was in all aspects of the the art and theatre and and everything of life in, in this province.
1: A charming man lost okay thank
14: you so much thank you Patty thanks Mary bye bye take care bye
1: bye uh, Mary Walsh talking about some of the things that she's worked on together with Rick and of course Rick's contribution and no question Donald Butt has done an amazing job out of Trinity and the driving force behind it initially so says Mary Walsh Rick Boland dead at the age of 70 let's take a break don't go away welcome back to the show uh, let's go to line number one good morning Greg you're on the air
6: Good morning, Patty. Thank I'm Greg you. I'm uh, Just wondering, I, I think there was some announcement there now regarding people to take money from the government or whatever that's going to do up like basement apartments and stuff
1: for yeah. housing? Up to $40,000 in a forgivable loan and the portal is now open, yes.
6: Okay. Yep. But the thing is, if you, if you look at reality today, like who's got all the money? The government. Who's got a lot less money? The people. Because every which way you turn, we're taxed to death. And then they owe this money in hand and use it as bait probably now for the next election. But the thing is, if someone's going to take a basement and, and do it up as an apartment, you know, for the, to rent, they, they've got to look at a lot of different things, too, because the cost of all the materials has gone up because of the Liberal government and their carbon taxes and transportation costs got drove, you know, all because of this chain reaction. So once you put this apartment in your basement, now you're going to have two water rates because you're, you're providing to, to residential properties. Yeah. And, that's and got nothing to do with the liberals. No, I'm just saying, but they're using taxpayers' money as bait now to probably get reelected again, putting out all this stuff. Like, they know the problems. They know all the people are being taxed to death. And, and that's, that's the kind of stuff that they play on people's brains. But what I'm saying is, for, for half for of this money, they're not doing it because they like you or to help you. They're looking after all of their other divisions of government.
1: So, Isn't this a people- good idea, though? Like, regardless of the political party in power, isn't the opportunity to have a forgivable loan, up to 50% of renovations, maximum $40,000 for the homeowner, if I, get, if I avail of that, I've now increased the property value of my own home. I'm bringing in extra revenue through a rental in the basement or what have you. So isn't that, isn't that actually a good plan?
6: Yeah, well, that's the part I was just gonna break down for you because it looks good the way you just explained it. But now the owner of this property has got like say to pay the town or municipalities two water rates, yeah. then they've got to pay two garbage collection fees, then they've got to go buy mo- like they've got to go spend money for to buy their permits, then up goes your assessed value, which you've got to pay more in taxes, up goes your insurance costs, because now you've got to insure your basement as well as upstairs, and then when it's all said and done Any profits after that is taxable. So, like, what's the big deal? And even for government, like, you know, I I look around, I see what's going on all the time, because every time the government gets involved, it's so easy to waste our money. Because when they go to do a design on a building, it's never just a plain, rectangular, four-units, eight-unit apartment building. Oh, no, they've got to go with all the ins and outs and curves, Uh, garrets, fancy roofs. Like, come on! If you're going to put up an apartment building, the people are not going to live in the roof. Just design it so it's practical and usable. You know, you take, for example, even out here in of Bass, the town put up eight units, just finished there a little while back and got occupied. At a cost of about three million dollars. Like, for anybody else building that same building, you could have made it more straightforward, and built that building for one million dollars. That case, if you multiply that by three, they could have provided twenty-four units, not eight. But again, always over design because you're spending other people's money. Now, when you look at it, you know, the government is actually in competition with landlords and your common business people who always invested in, like years ago. But all of this problem that we're seeing today has been only created since Trudeau got in. we got to look back. The carbon tax, the carbon tax affects everything that we do every day of our life. Everything that we buy, everything that gets right from the tree that gets cut in British Columbia to the mill that cuts it, to the transportation company that delivers it, everything gets tacked on. So when you get, okay, for example, a a $1 million building in St. John's, if you're paying a 10 mil rate, you're paying $10,000 a year tax. But because all of the production costs, transportation costs, everything got driven by taxes and carbon tax. Once that material gets delivered from British Columbia to St. John's to put up a building that was once a million dollars, paying $10,000 a year tax, now that building is going to be at $2 million. So now they're going to pay $20,000 tax. By paying $20,000 tax, the replacement cost on that building has gone up. Your
1: insurance cost doubles. Carbon tax, tax has caused—hold on a second. Carbon tax has caused a doubling in whether it be the construction cost, materials, or otherwise? No. I mean, yes. No, it hasn't. Yes. Uh, of No, Patty,
6: not. just listen, listen to the chain reaction here. This is no, you just said counts.
1: that a $1 million building is now a $2 million building, and your taxes have doubled because of the carbon tax, which is demonstrably not true. Whether people oh, like uh, or dislike or loathe the prime minister or carbon tax or otherwise, that's just simply inaccurate. That's all.
6: Okay, so if I had a building, like, when I paid insurance on my building here in town or whatever, you know, back when I started off in 86, I think it was, I was paying like $3,000 a year insurance. Now I'm up to $10,000 a year, and I'm paying $1,500 HST, which was almost half of my insurance policy back then. You know, it's all driven by government greed. Everything that we want to do, they got their fingers in the pie. You know, even when i done my building, I, I tell you, like, it had, had a two-inch water line at that time. Back then, a two-inch water line was $900 a year. But because I put in 12 units, I had to pay 12 times the household rate, which was $3,600 a year. But the 12 units are not using as much water if I use that two-inch commercial line as a car wash. But I got dinged for that. Then, you know, as time went on, my garbage collection fee was built into my property tax. Now, once the Western Regional Waste Management got involved, they realized, oh, we don't get enough now to collect your garbage, so we're going to charge you 160 times the other 11 units. So now it dings me another seventeen $1, hundred sixty dollars You know, the repair costs are all driven, you know, after COVID and whatever. The, the bluff was on that. So what? the hot water tank that you could buy a few years ago at $275 today is like five and 600
1: What was the so, bluff of the pandemic? I'm sorry, I kind of missed that part.
6: Well, well, we'll let that go, because that was just a, just a whirl put in fear. But, uh, you know, you, you got it's, everything just driven over and over by government. And, you know, they come out with this program now, so what they'll do, they'll probably create another 50 jobs in Ottawa to send out all this funding. Who's going to pay these 50 people? The,
1: the funding Me, for... The a
6: taxpayer prov- again. Uh,
1: 50 jobs in Ottawa to manage a provincial program? No.
6: Well, whatever. Like, the money's coming from somewhere. It's not just coming from provincial. The federal government's going to put in some, too.
1: Not on that program, they're not.
6: Oh, well. Now, they probably wouldn't do it, Patty, if it wasn't coming from federal somewhere in the back door
1: okay. Well I mean we can
6: you know, mix the stuff up all
1: we like. And you mentioned yeah. HST, or G S T and H S T. GST introduced on the first of January nineteen ninety one by Conservative uh, Prime Minister Brian Mulroney. So I mean just to
6: Oh, yeah, I know I know that. Context. But what I'm saying is regardless of what crowd is in there, we're still dinged for it. And you know, and, and look at who gains. Like even when you go to construct a building and, and every time the labor rates goes up, who really gains from minimum wage going up? I'll tell you who. It's the government. Because again, if it goes up a dollar an hour, yeah, they get to collect probably thirty cents out of that dollar.
1: Minimum now, people who make minimum wage pay minimum amount of tax. I mean, it's just the facts of the matter. You know, people say instead of raising minimum wage, just take away some of the taxes that people who earn minimum wage uh, have to pay. They pay a minimal amount of tax, like a pittance in tax. It yes, is
6: yeah but at the end of the day for example if someone at the Tim Hortons across the street gets a dollar an hour the people across the street at Canadian Tire gets a dollar an hour okay well the employers up the price of almost everything a little bit it don't it don't seem like much but when they go across the street from Canadian Tire to buy a coffee the price of coffee has gone up when they go up to Canadian Tire to buy a a bunch of nuts and bolts the price has gone up who really gained nobody Nobody really gains and, – and and money is only as good as what you can buy with it because I've, I've traveled to, like, foreign countries, and people will say, oh, uh, people at a resort is making $3 an hour minimum wage. Huh. Well, I wouldn't work for that. We'll work for 15 up here. But in a Dominican – a pineapple is
1: 50 cents. Yeah, but how can they you compare, compare listen, what goes no, on in the Dominican?
6: Just. No, I'm just – what I'm saying is the money that we're making is not as good as what they're making, even when it's less. So by being taxed to death up here, people can't buy anything with their money. So what, the, the point I was trying to make at $3 an hour in the Dominican and a pineapple being 50 cents, they could buy six pineapples for one hour's wage. Here in Newfoundland, a pineapple is probably $5. So if they're making $15 an hour, they can only buy three pineapples with an hour's wage.
1: Who's better off? Uh, who's better off uh, living in the yeah. Dominican or living in Canada? Anybody living in Canada?
6: Yo, your uh, probably, probably. Definitely. But then again, they don't, have to, they don't have to buy all their fuel and pay uh, you know, 30% taxes on it. They don't uh, have okay, good insulation for their homes. We're going a little <laughs> bit
1: far afield here with any sort of actual relevance to what's happening in the country. How many pineapples you can buy with an hour's work? Living no, in Punta Cana? I'm talking about
6: uh, I'm talking about wage comparison, uh, yeah. Patty. And you know, for for the minimum wage to continue to rise, and at the end of the day, no one ever gains.
1: Appreciate the time, Greg. Take good care. Uh, Okay, Betty. Thank uh, you. You're welcome. Bye-bye. All right, let's take a break for the news. When we come back, we did mention the implication regarding Loblaw's decision to have all of the Manulife Financial Corp drug coverage inside that 260 medications inside what they call the specialty drug care plan. It's an issue for Jordan Brown and Lab West. We'll hear why, why? right after the news. Don't go away.
0: Every Saturday is perfect for a night at the cabin. The Cabin Party with Brian O'Connell. Saturday night starting at 7 p.m. on
1: VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Say good morning to the NDP member for Lab West, that's Jordan Brown. Jordan, you're on the air.
11: Uh, thank you, Patty, for having me on this board today.
1: No problem. So I've been talking about the issue, the relationship between Lab laws and manual life financial corporate. It has pretty big implications where you live. Tell us about some of the numbers.
11: Well, exactly. So, right now, as everyone knows in this province, Labra West is a mining community. So, two of the largest employers are, uh, you know, Tacora Resources and uh, Rio Tinto IOC. Both those companies use manual life for their employees, for their benefits packages, and their obviously their dental health, eye, you know, all their health care. So, that is, makes up about, you know, a good about 75% of the population here in Labra West. And that's including retirees. Many of the retirees that do finish up with the mines get to keep a lot of their manual life um, perks. So, Given that said, uh, many of those retirees, especially those ones, have complex medical needs where they require their drug plan, their drug card. So now a lot of the drugs that are on that 200-plus list plus list, there is no Loblaw store within – I would say maybe affili- uh, the closest would be an affiliate store probably down on the Quebec North Shore, <laughs> like down around Baie Comeau, Sutil, something like that. So unless someone has to drive 500-plus, 600-plus kilometers to get their drugs – this is going to affect our our, our residents.
1: Are your worries or fears those of your residents allayed when the shopper says they can ship it to you?
11: Well, but a lot of them saying it's like, okay, you can ship it to us. But that's not that's not care. That's just putting it in a box and sending it up to the residents here. A lot of them have established trust, especially with a lot of complex health needs, with their pharmacists here mm-hmm. in the region. So you're going to say, we're going to put it in a box and ship it up to you. What if it's wrong? What if the dosages are wrong? What if they're going to wait again? These are complex, serious health complex needs a lot of these drugs are for. And this is what they're, This is the kind of thing that they're going to do. This is just corporate greed at its best, Patty.
1: Yeah, it's, I'm having a hard time because, you know, you'll hear from one analyst or one industry watcher talking about it has not been a bad thing other people talk about the shady relationship that this creates and these are 260 medications just to remind folks we're talking about very complex and chronic issues life-threatening in many cases we talk about rheumatoid arthritis Crohn's multiple sclerosis pulmonary arterial hypertension cancer osteoporosis hepatitis C so we're not talking about simple ailments here
11: no, and a lot of those leagues you listed, I, I know residents who come to my office for other reasons who have these complex needs. And, you know, most of them are retirees from the mines and this is what the, uh, and who are dependent on manual life. And these things are complex things that you have to have a conversation with your pharmacist about. And if we're going to say, you know, try to get some drugs shipped up from, you know, uh, the close, like I said, the closest Shoppers Drug Mart to Labrador West is 620 kilometers away. There is no other Shoppers Drug Mart. There is no Loblaws affiliate store or nothing in the entirety of Labrador. And this right here is what Loblaws and Manulife think is okay. It's unreal. It blows my mind. And you've got to stop and think. There's over 2,000 employees at Rio Tinto IOC alone. That is 2,000 employees with Manulife. And this is how they're going to treat those uh, customers it is it's corporate greed at its finest, Paddy. Uh,
1: it, I'd like to be able to break it down a little further. Some of the people who have chimed in. with whether be Mark andre Gagnon from Carleton University. I'd be interested to get his perspective because this is the sole focus in, in his world of academia. So maybe he can help us break down how these deals have worked historically, what they've meant for the end user or the client or the patient, whatever the right word is. So I'll try to get someone on to give us a better understanding of, you know, historical context, how these deals work, what are the associated risks. So maybe just Maybe we can expand this conversation by inviting someone like the professor on. I think that would oh, be helpful.
11: Absolutely. But at the end of the day, I have my phone has not stopped ringing. I have very worried seniors and current employees of these two in, uh, places. Plus, you know, there's other manual life in, uh, uh, users in other mine-related industries here in Lab West. You know, a lot of people with collective agreements and stuff, that's usually normally they're affiliated with, are calling me going, I can't have my drugs shipped to me. I can't have this. I have to have someone here who knows what they're doing. And they have established relationships with the pharmacists here in this community that's been here for 20, 30 plus years who've been working for, with this community. And now, you know, this, they think this is okay, especially like this is Canada. We're not, you know, we're a very spread out country. And then when you look at us here in Newfoundland Labrador, we're even more spread out than the national average. And this is how they think it's going to be fine. Unless, you know, Loblaws wants to open up a grocery store here in Lab West tomorrow. Other than this, it's absolutely unacceptable. And you can't argue with me, Patty, that, you know this this wasn't because of you know uh, you know corporate greed and you know bottom end stuff and you know trying to get the dividends to the investors and all this fun stuff at the end of the day this is supposed to be helping people instead they're just turning around and harming people just to get an extra buck
1: did I argue with that point I don't recall <laughs> uh, I'm not trying to agree uh,
11: general I'm not, I'm, talking about, I'm not talking to you directly but you know from some of the commentary I've been seeing so far
1: yeah that's why I'm going to invite someone on who's you know probably examined these types of relationships in the past what it has meant what the outcomes have been because I didn't like when I first read the story I spoke about it as being really problematic we've got a competition problem in the country period some of the small independent Independent pharmacies are absolutely going to feel the pinch of losing some of their standing clients and their built-in relationships. So this is a problem across the board. I would suggest, and we're going to see if we can figure it out a little further. Uh, anything else you'd like to add to the conversation this morning, Jordan?
11: Well, absolutely. And you, want, you mentioned the competition thing. Just look at it. Like, mo- there's only three large corporations that are running these grocery pharmacy chains in this country right now. You know, there's there's, there's the three of them, and then you got Walmart over onto the other side there. But it, as a Canadian companies, there's only three large Canadian companies, massive multi-million-dollar countries. That are running our pharmacies and running our uh, grocery stores, and they keep gobbling up all the other brands one after the other. We have there is there is no competition left in this country right now. We have a serious problem when it comes to like, a grocery and pharmacies.
1: Yeah, grocery. Five companies gobble up 80 percent of the retail market, which is not only the shelf issue; it's also about distribution. They hold a significant big stick over the heads of the distributors, so that has created a competitive problem. Don't take it from me; take it from the Competition Bureau, which has said exactly that. I appreciate the. Time Jordan, thanks for the call. Take,
11: take, take care, my friend. Take bye-bye.
1: care, bye-bye. Jordan Brown. NDP member for Lab West. Let's go to line number three. Say good morning to Michael Harris from the Manual River, Manual's River Manuel's River Interpretation Centre. Michael, you're on the air. How are you doing today, Paddy? Best kind. How about you?
3: Oh, not too bad. I want to let your listeners know about some fantastic events coming up at Manuel's River uh, in the month of February. Uh, we have our... Uh, our uh, vendor market coming up on um, Sunday. That's February the 11th. Admission by donation on that one. Of course, all proceeds go to benefit uh, our charity here. Uh, following that, we have a uh, very exciting talks coming up. We've titled MR Talks, and we bring in people to talk about a lot of uh, STEM to- STEM topics, usually relevant to Newfoundland, uh, in our cozy theater setting. That takes place. Uh, every thursday through february and admission for that one is by donation as well and uh lastly we have our uh, theater movies happening every wednesday we have a different movie going a lot of favorites uh for a little bit now we're doing reels of uh hand-picked cult classics that seems to be a, a big hit in the community
1: give us an idea of what some of the cult classics are
3: we had a, a clockwork orange play yesterday which uh, drew in a good crowd following up on that one we have uh, anchorman and for valentine's day <laughs> uh, you know most people might go out and have a steak and some wine but we're inviting everyone down to come to mounds river and catch pulp fiction on our big screen
1: fantastic film and you mentioned uh, clockwork orange of course starring malcolm mcdowell who stars right now in son of a critch which is an amazing get by that crew cool stuff
3: all right. Sounds good, Patty. And one more thing I'd like sure. to mention is uh, we always have our memberships at Manuel's River, and for all our fun, fun events we have here, there's always a discount for any of our members who sign up, and they can sign up at manualsriver.ca.
1: Appreciate the time. Good luck with the events, Michael. Thanks a lot, Patty. You take care. You too. Bye-bye. Cult classic films, and of course there are many. And the people who support them, they will watch them till the end of time. I don't know what some of your favorite cult classics. You have one, Dave, that's off the beaten path, little Rocky Horror Picture Show or something. Let's see what Dave's got for a cult classic. The quiet Man with the Duke. Good one. Let's uh, phone check in on Twitter for the morning. Uh, we're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Email address is openline at VOCM.com, But our favorite is when you join us live on the program, just like Shane Cashin, who's with the Canadian Federation of the Blind. And then Graham Wood, they've got a petition for uh, regarding the rec fishery, the recreational food fishery. We'll hear about that right after this. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's see. Let's go to line number six. Good morning, Graham Wood. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Doing okay. How about you? Good. It's a beautiful day here in Marystown and Grand Bank. Yeah, it's quite nice here. Uh, Yeah, yeah, the weather is good. Uh, Not going to be so good later on the weekend out here, but I'm not sure what's happening there yet. Apparently not, so we'll wait and see what comes. Let's talk about uh, Petition E4781.
15: Yep, well, Petition E4781, a group has got together in the last uh, month, and uh, we decided that, uh, and we've talked to MP uh, Clifford Small and he's agreed to present it in the House of Commons so we started the petition uh, at the beginning of February and it's open until the February 28th and it's calling upon to, uh, to instate the recreational cod fishery in Newfoundland and Labrador allows for retention of cod every day from July through to July 1st through to October 1st and uh, right now with uh, recreational fishers being allowed to retain 5 fish per day with a limit of 20 fish per boat per day, and tourist licensed operators be allowed to retain two fish per tourist per day.
1: Did you say fish every day from June the first to from October? July the first. July, July the first. 1st to the first of October. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we
15: usually have uh, we usually have 39 days uh, max. And what we find, uh, you know, people are going out on the water, uh, risking to get, you know, get their fish or whatever in uh, various days. And you can only retain fish on the weekend, Saturday, Sunday, and Monday. And uh, what we find is that uh, a lot of our tourists that come, that want to book during the week, they can't can't retain one fish. Even under an experimental license, fish have to return live uh, after study. So uh, we've been 10 years now trying to trying to get some changes made in the recreational fishery
1: that's a massive change 39 days to what you're suggesting is huge and of course the boat limit has always been a tricky one a bit of a gray area for me graham because they say five fish per person uh 15 per boat but the dfo themselves have all gone on to say that that's a recommendation no one's going to get fined if i got five people in a boat that can accommodate five people and we all have five fish we're going to be okay but they really should be a bit more clear on that one because that one's that one trips people up all the time Inside, you know, the petitions, it all includes the legalese or the whereas or what have you. But do you think maybe you overshoot with going from 39 days? I'm not sure exactly how many days are between July the 1st and October the 1st, but that every single day fishing is a massive change. Do you think you maybe you overshot? Yeah. No, I definitely don't think so. I think the reality
15: is that people pick their days. And, uh, you know, it's like uh, I use the examples like when uh, Bix Pickles disappeared from the marketplace in the stores. People went everywhere to, uh, to get Bix Pickles. So, uh, you know, I think the same thing. I don't think you'll see any increase in, uh, in effort. Uh, you'll certainly get rid of the people who are doing two or three trips a day. And, uh, you know, we do need more enforcement, but the reality is is that uh, people right now are, are, are hampered and tourists are hampered uh, to be able to partake in a, in a recreational fishery uh, during the weekdays. So it's, uh, to me, uh, unlike the other Atlantic provinces, they can fish every day during the recreational season.
1: Fair enough. And another one of the key recommendations inside the petition, which I really like, and this has been long a frustration for me and everyone else, I would suggest, is that DFO knows well in advance of when they actually tell us when the food fishery is going to be, because it's very similar dates every single year, yet we wait to the 11th hour to be told when it's going to happen, which I don't know why they do that the way they uh, they do it. So you're also including in this mandate that the minister announce the season dates and regulations by the 1st of May of each year. That makes a ton of sense to me.
15: It definitely does because, you know, we get people calling for tours and say book a tour or other people want to plan their holidays. People get upset that how can I plan if I want to come home from Fort McMurray and be able to be able to fish? We don't know until usually the second or third week of June
1: before DFO announces
15: even if there's going to be a recreational fishery.
1: Yeah, it's so weird. I don't know why they do that. It's very, you know, it's frustrating for folks who are just doing it for to put some cod on the table. But even in the commercial fisheries, it really feels like there's big delays in announcing what they absolutely already have ironed out in-house before they even tell folks who are doing it for a living exactly when the dates will be and the total allowable catch individual quotas up and down the line.
15: I totally agree. And I don't think you're going to see a great increase. I mean, we take uh, uh, recreational season takes a very small percentage of fish Uh, in the total allowable catch Uh, I don't know what the number is I heard it was 1% or 1.5% but reality is that a lot of people really want the flexibility to be able to get their fish I mean we even suggested DFO that uh, tags could be used you know but then people would have to purchase tags, and, and that might not go over well because people don't want to spend you know, $25 or whatever per season to buy tags. But I think we need more flexibility. I think we'll need to allow the public to be able to say when they go out. And, uh, you know, I don't think it, it causes this level of urgency to uh, get their fish because they got to go on a Saturday, Sunday, or Monday. Yeah, I mean... And the fall season. the fall season is dead anyway. I mean, those 10 days... I don't know how many people in Newfoundland get around to actually fishing on those 10 days because there's always bad weather, it's hurricane season. And, you know, once it starts to get stormy and the weather, weather patterns change, then those 10 days really don't mean very much
1: no they feel like a bit of a throwaway because you're absolutely right it will be extremely unlikely to have nice weather on those days and the point that people make is you know people push the envelope maybe go out when they should not be out especially in some of the really small uh, watercraft that you see some people going out in on the big merciless north atlantic it makes me cringe sometimes uh so graham how long do people have to sign on to the petition what kind of tracks do you have so far
15: we got uh, 214 votes uh, in the last, uh, last I last checked this morning, and uh, we haven't really advertised it. Uh, I was on the broadcast yesterday and today with you and uh, only on Facebook. So, you know, we really want to thank uh, Clifford Small for agreeing to present this petition in the House of Commons, and we're looking forward to getting 5,000 5, petitioners. To say, yeah, we want this changed and uh, kind of take it to the Minister and to the Government of Canada that it's time to change this and allow us the flexibility to be able to catch a few uh, fish for our freezers and uh, and provide our, our elderly and stuff with fish.
1: Absolutely. Uh, keep us in the loop on how you proceed, what the final numbers look like, and I appreciate the time this morning, Graham.
15: Thank you very much, Patty,
1: and have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. All right. Here we go. Uh, petition E4781. You can find it on the government's website. Let's go to line number four. Final word this morning goes to our friend Shane Cashin from the Canadian Federation of the Blind. Good morning, Shane. You're on the air.
16: Good to be here, Patty. Thank you so much for taking my call and uh, being the last one on the air this morning. I really appreciate that. It's, uh, it's great to be talking with you again, and... You know, it's that time of year where we're doing White Cane Week, which will begin on Sunday, the 4th of February, up until Saturday, the uh, 10th, of course. We've been kind of expanding to White Cane Month, and I will take a breath.
1: Well, welcome back to the show. So what exactly is going on this year for White Cane Week? Anything special?
16: Uh, we always try to do something around uh, this time of year for it to be special. I mean, we are doing the provincial proclamation tomorrow with uh, Chief Supreme Court Justice since the current LG of the province. So we got uh, them taking care of that tomorrow morning at 11 at Government House. And we also have the um, the uh, day with the therapeutic recreational students at the Academy of Canada at the CNIB on Tuesday the 6th. And we have... Uh, the Lions Club, St John's Lions Club, having the night of crib with the CCB uh, members, and we also have on um, the 11th uh, dinner in the dark at Boston Pizza. We're doing that again this year. That was a success last year, and we have on the we have on the 24th of February we have the uh, bowling with the St John's Lions over at St Pat's Lanes. That's what we're doing.
1: It's great stuff. You know, Shane, when we talk to, say, for instance, people like Don Connolly and yourself, and there's so many recreational opportunities and social opportunities for folks with vision loss who maybe are just fearful that because of their disability that they can't avail of some of these bad things like playing crib or going bowling or golf or curling or anything else under the sun. So what's your message to folks who, you know, may be sitting in silence with their vision loss and not getting out and take, taking advantage of some of the events that are put out, whether it be White Cane Week or Vision Month in May?
16: Exactly. Right there. Uh, get out there, take advantage of life. Uh, as they say, take life by the horns and uh, go with it. Uh, you have one life; live it to the fullest. Uh, if you have a visual impairment, um, that's that's no reason to stay home and to stay out of the community. Um, do what you can. Do what's in your comfort zone, and, and uh, take it as it comes.
1: Yeah, it's good on you, Shane, for being part of this and putting these uh, events in action. Anything else you'd like to say before we unfortunately run out of time soon?
16: No, I, I appreciate this, and of course, White King goes back to the whole idea of showing the general population as well as those who blind, visually impaired, uh, who are blind, visually impaired. That we can, we can do anything. We work hard at it, and there's nothing we can't do. minus driving 18-wheeler, and uh, you know, certainly happy White King Week to everybody. And we do things throughout the year. And if you want to join our club. Uh, We can certainly help you do it as well. You can reach out to myself or you can reach out to any of the members and we can certainly get you hooked up with the right people.
1: I appreciate this. Good luck with uh, White Cane Week. You're always welcome on the show, Shane. Always. Talk to you soon. Thanks, buddy. Bye-bye. Shane Cashin with the uh, Canadian Federation of the Blind and, of course, the petitions like E4781 regarding expansion of the recreational food fishery. I say the government's website, but, of course, all those petitions are at our commons Right, Dave? Right, our All right, good show today. Big thanks to all hands who support the program, and we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Paddy Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.